Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I'm Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David, Yes. welcome back from uh, San Diego to uh-huh. sunny, hot Los Angeles. Yeah, it's been, it has been hot. Um, uh, although I've literally every week, every day this week, this is my privileged existence. Mm-hmm. Or maybe I'm a workaholic. Sure. But I get up early. I get in my car and turn the air conditioning on. Yeah. I drive to work. I spend all day in an air-conditioned office building. And then I go to the movies. Yeah. And then I come home. And by the time I come home, it's like 10 o'clock at night, and it's cooled down. So I've yeah. missed the valley heat for the most part. Yeah. Uh, Jen and I went to Palm Springs. Uh, and oh, I was What was that? <laughs> that was wise. Well, here's the, th- here's the deal. It's the off-season uh, in the summer because it's so hot. Yeah. Uh, which means, like, hotel rooms are a lot cheaper, and you're more likely to get a room at a nice hotel, and you can get reservations. It's actually something of a ghost town when you drive in. Or, as Jen adorably said it, it's like a grave town. She yeah. meant to say ghost yeah. town or graveyard. <laughs> but I like the idea of now referring to a cemetery as a, as a grave town. Uh, but anyway, uh, and so... It got up to like 115 uh, while we were there. And so we told people that we were going and they said the same thing that you did. They said like, oh, you're going when it's super hot. And, and I said like, well, if I do everything right, I will only experience the heat between my car and wherever I'm going. Yeah. If I do it right. Yeah. But then, uh, but Jen wanted to like hang out at the pool and I'm like, oh boy, uh oh. And so we hung out at the pool, and it, it got very warm. But the great thing about it is that it really gave me a, an appreciation every time I went inside. Sure, <laughs> you know, which I all, which I kind of have anyway, 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 anyway. Yeah. Walk into that wall of cool, and it's oh, and you feel thankful that you're alive. <laughs> Um, all right, so we should get started. I have something to say about the, about uh, the one of the big debates of film Twitter the the, the this week. You're not on. Twitter, I'm not on so film Twitter, so um, I, it, I always like to check in and see what you're passionate about within that sub community. Oh, here's the thing: I'm not I'm not passionate at all. I don't okay. care how you feel about this. Okay, but and I also understand the argument that the way the director tells you to interpret his films is not necessarily the way that oh yes no. Interpret. That said, Kill Bill is one movie. Not two movies. It's one movie. Uh, <laughs> that, that is my point of view. It, my uh, my point of view movies. is it is two movies. Huh. Well, uh, when he releases it as one, that's okay. It's, it's so, two movies, so and they're tonally very very different from one another. Then. I don't think I think that tonal difference isn't as jarring when you actually watch it, which seems counterintuitive. I could, I could see that because I have sat down and watched uh, watched Kill Bill. All in a row. Do you consider the Lord of the Rings original trilogy one movie? Uh, no, I guess I think of those as three movies. You, so movies that are filmed at the same time yet released theatrically but, as separate I mean, this entities. Is, this is, this is uh, uh, picking nits here, but Kill Bill was conceived and filmed with the intention of it being one film. It was later mm. chopped up. Okay. Um, I, I think partially a, something Miramax wanted to do. They were like, we'll get, we can't, you know, we're going to lose money if we put a four movie, if our movie out in theaters, we'll make more money doing it this way. Did I, which was, uh, which happened. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Although I do wonder, um, given Tarantino's critical and Academy prestige, even at the time, if they had released it as one big epic movie, 
does Uma Thurman get a Best Actress nomination? Oh, maybe. Does yeah. David Carradine get a Best Supporting Actor nomination? Like, I feel like if it had been put out that way, I think it would have been seen as a bigger achievement um, by the Academy because it got like nothing from the Academy. But um, did I ever tell you about my? You know my weird editing projects that I do every once in a while, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. where I basically took out the. Uh, the framing device from the English patient just treated it as a straightforward romance, uh, and it worked m- way better. And then I did a thing where I only I took all three Lord of the Rings movies, but I and I cut out everything that wasn't Frodo, and so I just called it Frodo's Journey, and that becomes a much bleaker film when you and it's yeah. just him, Sam, and uh, Gollum. And then I did one where I put. Uh, Kill Bill in chronological order. This is all just for me, by the way, because I'm just curious. Yeah. I'm fascinated by perspective. I'm fascinated on the way stories unfold, and especially mm-hmm. when someone chooses to go nonlinear. And uh, definitely there are... Uh, and, th- and actually, this kind of goes to my view of it as two movies, which, you know, if he views it as, as one, and if it was conceived as one, that's fine. But... Uh, the shifts in tone between, because when you put it in chronological order, you're jumping between the two films, um, and the tone changes so much. Um, and so that's the thing is the tone of the first one feels so insular. And then the tone of the second one feels so insular to me as well. That's why I think of them yeah. as two movies, but like um, you said, but I haven't watched them one right yeah, after I would, another. I would, say, I would say do it. And he, we had, uh, here's another thing to, to Terrence's, we haven't introduced you, Terrence, that's fine. To Terrence's point. <laughs> yes. Hi. <laughs> Lord, of the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy is three movies based on three books. Mm-hmm. Here's where it starts to get is mocking Jay part one and part two. Because those were conceived as two movies, but based on one book. Yeah, you know? same, so, with, same thing with the Harry Potter and, yeah. and Breaking Dawn. Um, well I think then, I'm more. I'm. What about the Hobbit uh, trilogy? Uh, That's three it's movies from one book. Whatever it wants to be. I yeah. feel like that could be one movie. I'm I fine just, with that. I'm going to go uh, with how it was distributed. Okay. And if he recuts it and releases it as one and is like this is my grand vision for it then I will then it's one take movie. it under consideration that it is one movie um, I'll tell you I'm, for selfish reasons I want Mockingjay to be thought of as two movies because I like part one and I really really hated part two um, and so I want to see them as two different movies I, de- I definitely as you know I don't really like Harry Potter 7.2 but I love 7.1 oh my gosh but when I but when I watch them together because 7.2, like when I saw it, it just, everything seemed so abrupt. Uh, but then when you watch them together, you're like, okay, well, if you would see them, if you look at them as one story, Absolutely, of yeah. course it's all set up. So it's not as abrupt when they start paying stuff off. Yeah. 7.1, I think I've said is my second favorite after <sighs> five. I hate Terrence, it. what's your problem? I hate Deadly Hallows part one. Why? Cause it's nothing but set up. And it's like, oh, so we're but just, also, so you just have me here for two and a half hours or two hours and 15, I think it's two hours and 15 minutes. Just but I, I'm okay you say, with that. You say nothing but set up, but I actually think that's still, that's approaching it from a plot first point of view. And I think what I like about 7.1 is so much of it is character and atmosphere based. Damn right. So they're just kind of hanging out. You got the whole animated sequence, which is super cool. What I think uh, is, you is really interesting <laughs> is like... <laughs> It's funny because I think I like I don't like it for the same reasons that I like Lord of the Rings because like Joey Magnuson who writes for Award Circuit who's one of my good friends does not care for the Lord of the Rings franchise because he feels like it's nothing but walking 
<laughs> and that's what Deathly Hallows Part 1 is, is nothing but them going around and camping and then going around and then Ron runs away and then go, you know. See, yes, like, but why does he run away? That's, the, that's, well, he doesn't just do wearing, it. you know, Salazar Slytherin's locket and it's affecting him. And <laughs> like, I, I think that if I were to watch them uh, together, I might have a different view. But yeah, 7.1 is I think I maybe have, my least favorite. Half Blood Prince is worse. Though. I have entirely the opposite point of view of your friend when it comes to the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Because I, especially as I've gotten older, I think when I was younger, when mm-hmm. they first came out, I was in college, I was really into sort of like the Helm's Deep battle and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And now when I watch it, as it goes on, I become less interested because I'm like, I liked them more when they were just walking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I love the original uh, trilogy. Well, but I, I, I insisted uh, up until you. I think we did our commentary, which is how, how many years ago now when we did our Lord. Many years ago now, because it was your old place. Yeah, no. um, we did our commentary. All we watched all three theatrical versions in in, in a row. And I think up until that point, because I hadn't revisited in a few years, if you would ask me which one was my favorite, I would have said the Two Towers. And mm. after that point, I was like, Oh, the Fellowship of the Ring is by far the best. I, I think so to too. Me. You disagree, obviously. I can tell the look in your face. No, parents. I actually have a hard time placing which one is is best for me i think they're all up there i think i like the re- the emotional payoffs of return of the king mm-hmm. um but you know i but i had to get through one and two to like be rewarded with those emotional payoffs at the end so yeah and if one and two had not done what they did yeah. so effectively the payoffs wouldn't have meant anything yeah i think there's too much in two and especially in three of what's the special effects company? Weta? Weta, yeah. I think just like showing off. Because as they kept making more money, New Line kept giving them more money for the post-production. That's why you've got this huge army of the ghosts in the third one, which is cool. But uh, a part of me, a part of of it feels like the, the, the tail wagging the dog uh, in, in, in terms of that as it goes on. We've gone so far astray. We haven't even introduced Terrence, so we've gotten into some nerdy yeah. territory, which mm-hmm. is fitting for the for the topic. I but honestly thought you were going a different way with the film sort of discussion. I thought you were going to talk about how people think Thelma Schoonmaker is not a good editor. I have so avoided. I don't even know what. I don't know what the genesis of that is because <laughs> I thought it was so. Because I, I saw that's one of those things. This happens both in film Twitter and like politics Twitter, yeah. where one person somewhere yes. tweeted something dumb and I never oh, see it and all yes. I see for two days are people mm-hmm. dunking on someone that's so, it yeah, that's yeah. so the whole film, film is going to make her like Martin Scorsese's movies have gotten too long and baggy or whatever people were saying thing um, I, I, I don't know what the origin of like it is Quentin Tarantino fan did that to distract from the fact that a couple of people didn't like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood so they were like oh look over there at this other yeah you know also with the <laughs> like I remember an editor's job is not to keep it tight. Like that's, it's it's about making the story that is there work. I remember, mm-hmm. I really don't like Cold Mountain, but one thing I came away from was like that is a well edited film. Walter it's Merch. a long it's a long movie that I don't like, and yet I could still mm-hmm. res- respect what Merch was doing. I would probably not like it now. I remember defending it at the time. Yeah, from you. Uh, and now, <laughs> and I might. Like, I think back, and I'm like, ah, I and I might like it more now, actually, if I were to rewatch yeah. it. But who who directed it? Uh, Mangella, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not really a fan outside of uh, Ripley, Ripley. Yeah, outside of Tom and Miss Ripley, which I still think really holds. So you're not an English based fan. I'm not an English patient. I'd be fascinated to watch your edit of the English patient. I have it on a hard drive somewhere. The thing I've always wanted to do, not actually do myself, but watch, even though it would take (laughs) many, many hours of my life, but if someone did what you did with Kill Bill with all of Lost... 
Like I've, the so you I start with like about Alice it. and Janney and yeah. T- Titus Welver and Mark. Uh, what's his name? You know, oh wow! Well, yeah, yeah. He plays. Uh, yeah. And I forget the character's name. This has been way too long. Jacob. Jacob. He plays yeah. Jacob. So you'd start with that, and then you get like Nestor Carbonell coming in yeah. next, and you'd like build up to your actual characters actually showing up. Yeah. But even then, you would meet them like decades and then years and then weeks before the flight. Yeah. And then you'd have a whole section just on the island, you know? And, and oh, you'd meet like the freighter characters. Hours and hours and hours before they ever show up on the show. Oh yeah, I don't know. People who don't to me that, watch Lost multiple times have no idea what I'm talking yeah, about. I I, <laughs> I I have thought of that and then realized like that's a TV show. It's not yeah. a couple of two hour movies. Yeah. Or even Lord of the Rings. Like when you're that's just about that was just about like removing things. So that was actually pretty easy to do. Um, yeah. And I will say that. Uh, Lord of the Rings, Frodo's Journey, as edited by Tyler Smith. Lots of walking. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, uh, real quick, before we get any further, I want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Tyler and I use them each and every day. Today, Tyler is listening to metal, as I always do. Mm-hmm. Not always. I listen to metal a lot. But there's this band I'm really into that I actually think you would like. Okay. But last, every time I recommend metal to you, you know, I, I I'm trying to be more open to it. But I literally it. sent you like clips of mm-hmm. Zeal and Ardor, and you've never listened to them. And no. I, I'm so convinced you would like Zeal and Ardor that I went out of my way to like, I'm going to pick three songs that are like not too metally to ease Tyler into the black metal part of Zeal and Ardor. I'll lean on the sort of like like gospely bluesy part of it. Oh, and, sure. Yeah. And I, but anyway, I wasn't listening to Zeal and Ardor. I was listening to Russian Circles, which is another band I think you might like if you okay. give them a chance. Um, are they Russian? Uh, they're not Russian. Oh. Uh, and uh, listening to a new song by Monolord. I'm a big fan of Monolord, and uh, their new song is uh, a nice short 10-minute long song called The Bastard Son that I rocked out to. sounded great on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds. That are, they're available at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you, go, if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one-third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Tyler? David? (laughs) Don't you also want to... I've got something on my mind. Is it about the Patreon? I thought you were going to... Oh, no, but I did want to remind everybody that, uh, yes, uh, our Patreon is going strong. We have several new subscribers, which is uh, great. Um, And I want to let everyone know that we have three tiers now, not just the two. We have uh, the Swabby tier, which is just... Let's start at the top. Yes. Shit rolls downhill. The Admiral tier at (laughs) at a mere $10 a month gets you four bonus episodes a month with video of us doing the episodes, which is not, it's mostly just us looking at the camera and talking, but Tyler adds some little sort of like things to to, to spice it up. But in addition to that, it also gets you our back catalog Mm. of premium episodes, all of our commentaries and all of our commentaries going forward. Yes. Um, 
uh, with video going forward, starting with the John Wick one, or sorry, with the Keanu Reeves ones. I think that, <laughs> yeah, I know. I think of him as John Wick. Uh, no, starting with the Keanu Reeves ones going forward, you get video of all the commentaries if you're an admiral, all the back catalog. So that's the admiral tier. The the uh, I can't remember what the petty uh, officer the petty officer the five dollar a month tier also gets you four episodes a, a month, um, but uh, no video and it gets you all of our commentaries going forward. Yes, with no video. Um, and then now there's the the swabby tier, which yeah. Uh, so which, if, if you don't want to, if you just want to dip your toe in the water, you're not sure you're ready the, to commit. Up the maritime yeah. game, yeah. It's exhausting after a while. <laughs> um, if you just want to try it out for two dollars a month, he's off the dock. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, there's a shark, you know. Um, uh, so for two dollars a month, you will get one audio bonus episode per month. It won't be. I'll say this: it won't be like the first of, episode of every month. So there might be more than a, than four weeks in between. It could be like, oh, you got the second episode of one month and the third episode of the next month. Yeah, because um, it'll be it'll be that's part of the fun of this lobby tier. It'll be at Tyler's discretion. Yes, whichever one he wants to promote yes. that month, or just things will be fun for you to listen to. So I will say this month, um, the the episode that is available to all three tiers just posted it is uh, our top five of 1972 so if you're interested in that and you just want to try things out you can start out at the swabby uh tier for two dollars a month and then if you like it then you can always upgrade to yeah. uh one of the other two so yeah and these top fives that we do by year we we uh, oh this is the there, it's a fun thing we do one a month and before we hit record we randomize the years that cinema has existed yeah land on a year and then give ourselves i would say less than five minutes to come up with our top five and then we hit record i so came i came up with my top five a long time ago uh, so, yeah they're more fun than for me because it's, yeah. this is by the seat of my pants this is what i think is my top five and maybe the next day i might feel differently that would stress um, me out tremendously you know maybe uh you know, maybe 1972, if we did it today, maybe I'd put Confessions of a Chinese Courtesan in the top five. Not in the honorable mentions. But uh, that's a little bit of, of a hint of what I... <laughs> I did not pick Confessions of a Chinese Courtesan. Um, anyway... What an odd spoiler. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that's available at Patreon at Battleship... Pay, uh, well, go to battleshipretention.com and click on the thing. Yes. It's on the website. Um, so I wanted to mention something. I know we have to get to Comic-Con, but we also came up with a structure... Well, so we that, have to get to uh, talking about Comic-Con. Yeah, yeah. Comic-Con no. really happened. <laughs> Wait, what? Oh, I've had my bag all packed for weeks now. Um, next year's maybe. <laughs> I just accidentally quoted Citizen Kane. Um, okay, so uh, you were mentioned. So I am not on film Twitter, but I I am in a number of like Facebook groups, mm-hmm. and so people will post stuff. Okay, and something that I've noticed the last couple weeks that's really been bothering me for a couple reasons: one, on principle, and two, professionally. Um, is that there are a lot of like decade in review uh, oh gosh, articles, so <laughs> and it's like it's like here are the twenty five best performances of the twenty tens. Here are the best. David Scott and myself, we're we're going to be working on a project that covers the twenty tens. I won't say what it is, yeah. and we are. I am always very excited to start something, and then Scott and David said like, no, we should wait till the end of the year, which I totally agree with. It's like. I understand you want to a person that wants to avoid recency bias, but at the same time, who's to say that one of the most amazing performances of the year won't happen the next in the next six months? Yeah, I know. Like you've got. I mean, speaking of Scorsese, Scorsese is going to be. Yeah, I'm really excited about Ed Astra. 
Um, oh, that's right. The James Gray uh, mm-hmm. uh, space movie. I'm really excited about that. Yeah. Um, it's like, I mean, they just announced the first wave of premieres at TIFF and it's there's, there's a bunch of really interesting stuff yeah. going at least on, wait till November or um, something yeah and, and I know there are stuff that has played at at like Sundance and Cannes that that not everyone has seen sure. you know I'm really yeah. excited about a lot of the, about Portrait of a Lady on Fire um, that, that that played it at, at, at Cannes no one who wasn't at Sundance has seen Blinded by the Light yet mm-hmm. I, I don't think yeah. they've uh, I don't know if they've started doing screenings this is um, hilarious because like when I saw that go up I was like did the decade end while I was at Comic Con <laughs> like I don't yeah. under, I don't understand um, July is just and we're talking about IndieWire um, which I feel like it's okay to mention because now they're being all defensive about people not being enthused with the fact that they put a decade um, piece yeah, together. You know what? They got a lot of cl- clicks out of people like me. Oh, I didn't even click on it. I, I, I like, didn't I'm not even going to give it. you the satisfaction no, I, of that I, I, I because did. it's ridiculous. Um, like, I have started to compile my best in the decade movie list. Like, I've got like 85 films on it, right? Um, with like 15 in the like potential co- contention and then whatever will come from this year. And like, that won't be finalized till like end of January 2020. Oh, so yeah. yeah. I think we have. You have to let. You have to give. Like the year time to settle, and maybe because we're critics, we'll like we'll see everything early. So maybe I could go mid January, but like something that important. I'll, yeah. use imp- I'll put important in quotes because, like, in, in the grand scheme of things, it's not so important. But like yours is. But in general, like lists aren't. But like that's how can you even like what if you see something that's like spectacular? Like, what if they see something spectacular in August that they would have put number one? It's sure. like, yeah. okay, so are you just going to go back and update the list? Yeah. I, I you feel don't like judge scary stories to tell in the dark until you've seen it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe Hobbs and Shaw will be one of the greatest movies we've ever probably, seen. Probably. It'll be yeah, up there. Quite possibly. It'll be, yeah. It'll, have to re, it'll be Hobbs and Shaw and then... Um, uh, the Master. <laughs> like a no, separation. I, I had one. The Act of Killing. There we go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, what was I? Uh, real quick, we might be hypocrites a little bit. Okay, you and I—not five months hypocrites, maybe two sure. weeks hypocrites. Because right now on our ca- on our battleship pretensions is a peek behind on our calendar. Yeah, you and I have a top ten of the decade episode coming out on December fifteenth. Yeah. December fifteenth, I'm more okay with simply because it's the end of the year mm-hmm. we live in los angeles we get invited to critic screenings and we have access yeah. screeners yeah so yeah. we've probably seen them. we have the ability early, to but you conceivably yeah. could have seen yes everything by that point so and but it's it's just one of those things that like so the and the project that we're working on is not the episode it's a much yeah. larger, yeah, larger undertaking yeah, yeah. that probably won't materialize until the spring at the very earliest it'll be after the Oscars yeah after award season yeah. in 2020 okay. is so, our project and one of the things that I'm excited oh, about I'm, I'm excited that you've hinted at the project because now we kind of can't back out exactly <laughs> yes um, but one of the things that I'm excited about in 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 that and that and that Scott and David were able to like 
temper my my enthusiasm for it by saying like no let's wait uh and as as long as we can is that like when it comes right down to it so being somebody who now teaches film history you can't really help but think in terms of decades it's just easier to delineate yeah and just say here's what the 80s were here's what the Mm -hmm. 90s were and even if there are like film movements like from 67 to 76 or 75 or something like that uh talking about new hollywood okay that's fine but at the same time I'm still comfortable talking about the sixties and the seventies. It's just easier. And that's how, and, and people are going to talk about the 2010s. They're going to talk about the socio political, uh, and cultural impact of film and on film and all that sort of thing. And it seems to me that like when you rush it, when you rush mm-hmm. that article, you are, you are, you're eager for, you want, first off, you clearly want to be the first one at the party, yes. but you also, and you want to get your your precious clicks, but you're not but you're not uh, doing justice we, to we, the. We run a web website, and those clicks are pretty precious. Yeah, but they are so precious, like, but we've we have actively avoided doing certain things that would guarantee clicks. Yeah, where I see it working out well is I think they did a story on like what were the film stories of the decade. That conceivably, I you know I don't really know if anything earth shattering will. Ha- maybe it will yeah. but like that is like I'd be like okay like that's a fine thing to look back in July because it's like alright we're you know halfway through the end of you know halfway through the year at the end of the decade yeah um, like what has impacted you know just the movie business in general like yeah. that is valid but like film lists and per- greatest performances lists you know maybe yeah. they should have spent a little more time identifying where the actors were from versus putting together that list because Robert Mm. Pattinson is not American Um, and yet his entry said what greatest American actor for good time yeah Mm -hmm. greatest American actor as opposed to like he's giving it's an American film and he's giving an American performance they meant that they (laughs) exactly why you should have waited till December (laughs) but you but you know what I'm I mean you guys get what I'm saying that like the immediacy, I think, undercuts the larger yeah. discussion, which, in my opinion, film criticism is about contextualizing yeah. film in in the time and the culture in which it exists and the impact it's going to have on history. And when you rush a list like that, and yeah, it's just a list, who cares? But at the same time, like you're you're just make you're just turning film criticism into lists you're yeah. just turning it into a checklist or whatever it is and it, i think it just cheapens yeah, it a i bit. think it wouldn't have been so reactionary if it was just like like sasha stone right like just on her at awards daily mm. just decided to do that i've been like girl why are you doing this so early <laughs> but like IndieWire, like right. a compilation of all of these like really influential i guess you can say critics like Ann Thompson works there and David Ehrlich and, and um, you know they do like the critic roundup so they gather and so like it means something for them to put out a right. like that. yeah I was just like oh, this could have waited <laughs> Tyler your point reminds me of something that was kind of discussed I think within film critic Twitter last year <laughs> during during TIFF 
which is the idea of here we are seeing a lot of movies that might end up being some of the most talked about, most discussed movies of the year. Right. And the critics are in a position where they're forced to knock out a review in an hour and then get in line for the next movie. Like, yeah. Mm. It's, it feels kind of frustrating that you, you, you know, I wish I could have, you know, written more seriously about burning yeah. or something, you know, uh, when I, it, my favorite when, film from last but year. I know. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I had to like, Turn. Not that, not that my I know that I'm not a big enough critic that I'm really setting the the, the tone of the conversation, but it applies to all the critics. Yeah, and I I will say though that I feel like if there's if there's a film that really s- struck somebody and they want to delve further into it, they can and they often will later, later. when they have more time yeah. or when the film gets a, a wider release or something like that. I think like that is just sort of a, an occupational hazard of of uh film festivals mm-hmm. and it doesn't preclude you uh from doing exactly what you want to do later yeah um whereas this it's like well the list is made i guess again for clicks they could always remake the list uh, at well, the end of the year at yeah, the actual end I, of the year I, i'm just like if they had done that december 1st I personally would have felt like it was still too early just because of when sure. i know i'm doing mine but yeah that's the last month of the year so yeah yeah Um, that's crazy well you know some of the movies that might end up on this list if we did it (laughs) at the end of the year Mm -hmm. as we will you know i mentioned scary stories to tell in the dark Mm. it chapter two that's right terminator six all of these movies that had presentations and presences at this year's San Diego Comic Con, that was smooth. <laughs> <laughs> was it? Because smooth. No, you could see was. it coming from a mile away. <laughs> that was smooth. Um, like the fucking Music Man. <laughs> Ter- Ter- Terrence, you and I um, were there. We were. Uh, uh, we brought we brought trouble with a capital T. <laughs> there we uh, go. <laughs> and then rhymes with SDCC. Um, to San Diego Comic Con this year. Um, didn't run into you once. No. I invited you out to, I, I reached out and invited you out to dinner. To and sushi, I, let's specify. <laughs> that I was going to say, the text I got back was, thanks, but I don't eat sushi. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What I is it that you don't, I mean. I just, I don't like raw fish. But Okay, but you've been, t- I mean, I don't know, maybe you're so scared of it, you never, you don't want to be in the same room. If you go to a Japanese restaurant, you can get some teriyaki and rice. Yeah, you, didn't, you, don't, you didn't come back with that res- response though you were just but like you, you said you stated sushi and i was like okay so i don't eat sushi if you'd have been like oh like they also have some other things on the menu maybe i would have considered it. but do you not know i, I guess no what I'm i didn't is you don't i just so you're I just, so anti-sushi you don't, you've never even been to a sushi restaurant it no i don't like yeah no. okay i also hate sushi as one should um because <laughs> it's you like know you know they what? have white rice which is perfect white rice is so up tyler's alley <laughs> I, I don't care for the starch. I don't care for the texture. Um, oh but no, I will say um, I, I have like sat with people as they eat sushi at a sushi place, and there is a there is a smell to it okay. that I yeah. also do not care for. Because my wife is a vegan and she doesn't eat fish yeah. either, but she loves going to sushi. She gets avocado rolls. Mm-hmm. She gets like vegetable tempura, tempura. Um, Let's all three of us go out for yeah. sushi, and Terrence, you and I can just sit and judge David. Did yes. you, although you know what I think of every time I'm at sushi and this is a very deep cut reference but i'm hoping terrence is a tv guy you might Uh know this did you watch the show treme yes do you remember 
I can't remember whom he was meeting, but Anton Batiste, one of Peter's character, was meeting someone at a sushi restaurant, mm-hmm. and he offered him some, and he said a line that I, I've only seen the episode once and remember the, to this day. He said, Anton Batiste is strictly a cooked fish-eating motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to steal that. That is, yeah, I don't, I don't do the raw. And there, and there is a very, there's a line from uh, Thank You for Smoking that I, that Adam Brody says that I actually like quite a bit, um, because they're in Los Angeles now, uh-huh. and they're visiting, like, uh, Rob who's an agent and they have sort of a koi pond with these right. beautiful fish and uh, and Adam Brody's like kind of makes you want to stop eating sushi but I guess you have to <laughs> <laughs> like the fact that you have to eat sushi if you live <laughs> in Los Angeles yeah, yeah. alright but that's not we're going to not yeah, talk much more about I knew, sushi I knew about, about 20 people who were at Comic Con and I didn't see any of them which is how just to give you a sense your listeners a sense of scale yeah <laughs> of I mean, how there many are, people were there yeah, yeah there are the, what so I'll, I'll, I'll say, oh, where should I start? So um, on Wednesday. Yeah, we're gonna, we are going to go uh, chronologically. We're not going to talk about everything. We're just going to talk about the highlights because mm-hmm. we're already mm-hmm. half an hour in. But um, this was the fiftieth Comic Con, so I went to a number of um, of um, uh, panels. I went to two panels that were sort of about the history mm-hmm. of, uh, of of Comic Con, and, and uh, yeah, they 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 talked about you know. Um, the first year they moved in in 91 I think was the year they moved into the convention center that they're in now mm. which was only half the size that it is now and it, they didn't even fill it they shared it with like the sales pavilion was like a like a truck show and part half of the upstairs rooms where it was a quilting show oh, the wow. first year and they're talk, going from that to within it was really apparently the one woman who used to work for Comic-Con pegged it to the year 2000 and Angelina Jolie coming to promote Tomb Raider and uh, how that was the first year that it ballooned. Like, they had, they had steadily grown at about, mm-hmm. like, 2 to 3% attendance every year, and then they jumped, like, 12% attendance uh, in that year. And now, so, yeah, they are, per the fire marshal of San Diego, capped at 135,000. Yeah, but that's just the people who have badge badges. Yeah. There's also tons of people like my wife who go to San Diego Comic Con, quote unquote, mm-hmm. and never go to the convention. They're there to hang out and to go to the offsite things yeah. and, and uh, try to you know get a foam shark fin hat for Shark Week and take a picture <laughs> with the Impractical Jokers and all the things my wife did <laughs> while she was there. Yeah, that's um, great. <laughs> so. Uh, Yes, that, I was just, that was a very long uh, uh, fleshing out of your comment yeah. about the scope of it. But yeah, so Wednesday night is preview night. I didn't actually, I'll be honest, I didn't go into the into preview night at all this mm. year. Because I, I worked a half day and then I was like, I'll work and I'll drive, I'll leave at lunch and drive down. Oh, jeez. <laughs> well, so my work is crazy right now, so I didn't get out till almost three. So I didn't yeah. get to San Diego until like 6.30. Um because traffic was like so I put it in my GPS and it says like almost four hours to get yeah, there it took me four hours to get there but and I left at nine o'clock <laughs> but I'm driving <laughs> see this is why normally when I take Wednesday off I leave around ten that's mm-hmm. you, you, it's your, the morning rush hour has died down yeah. it goes a lot faster but anyway so I'm driving but I'm driving I, you know leaving at like 245 I'm driving it says four hours but once I'm like out of the city I'm flying I'm, yeah and for a long time I'm flying and I'm like is this thing wrong? And then I get 12 miles away from my yep. hotel. Oh, sure. And sat there for the last hour of the drive. Yeah. That's, 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, Wednesday I didn't go to the convention center. I went to the hotel. I ate dinner at the hotel, and then I went and met uh, some friends, including friends of the show, uh, for drinks. Matt Patterson, whom you know. Yeah. Uh, Terrence Ryan, Ryan Gallagher. I'm not sure if you know him, but he was from the Criterion cast. And then also met um, David Blakesley from the, from the Criterion cast. Oh, yeah. wasn't even at comic-con just happened to be in san diego that night was leading the oh, next wow. day oh, wow. uh and so we all went out for drinks at the at the grand hyatt um but that's all i did what did you do on preview night uh, so i went to the amazon prime activation uh okay. so they brought carnival row the boys and the expanse i only did the activation for the boys because i was like i was not anticipating having to wait in line for the press day activation but uh, we did, <laughs> and then it broke down sort of right when my group got up to the front. But no, it was, I really enjoyed that. It was like a fun little thing where you're like helping solve a crime and it's very interactive and you have to find the clues around like the different places. So I think Amazon did a really good job of like making an offsite that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then having seen the last trailer that they put out. I was like, oh, so they really built that thing like in world because like that electronic shop is where like 10 of the 10 seconds of the two minutes of the trailer (laughs) take place. So I instantly recognized it. Uh, So that was a lot of fun. And then I went to the show floor. I was I thought I was early by getting there at 530. (laughs) I was not. No, I got there at 3. It opened up at 5.30 or 6. Um, and this w- this started my struggles with trying to get a Marvel uh, purchasing ticket. Uh, and I didn't get one throughout the entire convention wow. center. Because I got in the convention center at... They opened it at like 6. I got in at 6.12 and they'd capped the line for the night. Uh, the Thursday I and went... This is to buy... This is to buy... I just wanted a Wakanda spirit shirt <laughs> from Marvel... Um, I've heard that Marvel has this problem. Nightmare. That, but that a lot of it is other exhibitors yes. getting in line, buying the shit, and so, selling it. Because I saw something. Oh. Yeah. I'll interrupt you here. There was one, uh, I can't remember what uh, vendor had uh, one of their exclusives, but they, they made a skateboard deck that looked like the hoverboard from Back to the Future 2. Mm-hmm. And they were selling it for like 100 bucks or whatever. And they sold out. And so I'm walking on the show floor, and I see some other exhibitor just has one, yes. 500 bucks. Yeah, sure. Box. No, like, not to skip ahead a day, but to give you, I got up at 5.30 in the morning on a Thursday to get into the Everything Else line, to line up at a particular section of Sales Pavilion, to get into the convention center at 9.05 after it has opened at 9 o'clock, and they've capped the line for the day at Marvel. For the day, five minutes after. Wow. The, and I was like, oh, I'm not getting up. I just don't, I don't care enough about a shirt to get up any earlier than that. But like, yeah, that was there. So this is because Marvel wasn't part of the exclusives portal. Is that what? Yes. But also like every other place, because I spent a lot of money, um, (laughs) too much. I think I spent money in retaliation for the fact that Marvel didn't want my money. (laughs) So I was like, well, I'll give these other people my money. Like there were other exclusives that weren't a part of the portal that I knew were going to be sort of hot sellers like the making of alien they had the book and you got like a custom Mm. nostromo pin oh cool um and i just walked right up to that booth and bought it you know like their mondo they had to sort of change their 
policy a bit just because of how crazy the Mondo line gets. Yeah. But they have like a bigger booth now, so like they were running pretty efficiently. It yeah. just certain. I just, there's no point in having a line at all if you like cap it five minutes after like it's open for the day. Like that's just you losing out on potential business. So like you might as well. Then they need to do like Funko and just put that into the exclusives portal and so after that after spending a billion dollars on things not marvel <laughs> i caught about 20 minutes of pennyworth okay. oh okay and i had to leave oh okay you I, didn't yeah. show up and there were only 20 minutes left you watched 20 minutes i watched 20 minutes and watched I, was like, I was like i can't do this i remember i i when i first heard about the show and then i forgot about it and then i saw <laughs> there's a billboard right outside yeah. uh my not right outside my window, but it's right down the street. And I was like, Pennyworth. It's like, oh, that's like Alfred. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, well, the Waynes aren't there yet. They are. Oh, they are. Thomas, yeah. Thomas Wayne. Okay, all right. So he's he knows them. Is he working for them yet? Yes. Okay. In a so, way. So it's, a show, it's like the remains of the day. It's a show about a butler. Wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> I would pay that. for that. As I, just, as I was talking to my roommate about this when I got back, this is hard to, uh, just who cares <laughs> yeah who cares about Pennyworth's Alfred Pennyworth's backstory like he was because my roommate was like oh well you know he did da, 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 da. I was like yeah I could read that like that's that's not justification for millions of dollars to be yeah. spent on a show and essentially they're just turning it's it'll just be like a spy or espionage type show right yeah and then eventually he'll not do that anymore in Butler for a child. Yeah, it seems to me that that's where the show ends. Yeah, like if you want to, that feels it feels like okay, that's a at best a miniseries. But if you want to make a two-hour movie called yeah. Pennyworth about his life leading up to, that'd be great. And also, they cast him pretty young. Yeah, He's maybe in like his thirties. And so I'm like, oh, so you, we you there's like fifty. You know, forty. But 50. how old are the are Thomas and Martha when Bruce? Do they they have their uh, baby in fifty? N- let's not rehash. So yeah, it doesn't make sense. It's like that. Um, uh, the side by side comparison of um, Michael Fassbender and Dark Phoenix when it's supposed to be nineteen ninety two. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And yeah. Ian McKellen my, eight yeah. years later. My favorite thing with that is like how all of the Aunt Mays get twenty years younger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Every Spider Man reboot yeah. that we get. Um, that's I remember probably about. 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, DC did a miniseries called The Kents that was a Western, like, set in, like, the sort of uh, Civil War era about the, like, it's not about Ma and Pa Kent, it's yeah. about their ancestors fighting for the Union. It was actually kind of good, I thought. I'm sure it's good, it just doesn't need to be called that. Like, it's, it's... What, it, what is cool there? cover where it was like a piece of wood with <laughs> yeah. the Superman symbol like branded into it. It was really cool. I don't, I don't <laughs> mind. I like, stuff I like, like the Well, like that's like such a child yeah. right now. Just Pennyworth as a TV. Yeah, I just I couldn't. I, Twenty minutes was enough. Yeah. All right. So let's jump to Thursday. Mm-hmm. I've got three panels I want to talk about. Um, I'll start. We can yeah, try to trade off now. Um, just to let the the listener know, uh, we came up with the format, and it's you each are picking three things per day. It doesn't even necessarily have to be a panel, yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah. for you, just for Thursday, you're picking three panels that you went to. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, so the first, because yeah, Thursday was I actually I had a really good panel 
choices at, at, at Comic-Con. That, that was a bad mm. sentence, but um, I got really <laughs> lucky with panels, the panels that I picked to go to, and then a couple of the panels that I, or at least one panel that I just ended up at, uh, which we'll get to later on Thursday, uh, was great. But I'll start with the, uh, and this is one of the ones I talked about in the preview, You're Wrong, Leonard Moulton. It was mm-hmm. such it was such a blast because yeah. he's a delightful person, and it was sort of moderated by his daughter, who was also a delightful person. Mm. Um, and uh, the the premise was that people take turns going to the mic and saying, "You said this about this movie. I disagree with you." And it stuck to that to some point, but a lot of times other people just wanted to like ask him questions about sure. movies or about its history. He told, as I'm sure he's told the story many times, but he told the whole story about um, how he ended up in Gremlins Two, uh, which is <laughs> that he gave uh, that he. He said he generally tries not to review movies. He's not friends with a lot of filmmakers. When he is, he tries not to review their movies. But he's known Joe Dante since they were teenagers. Mm-hmm. And he was the movie critic for Entertainment Tonight, the only one, and Gremlins was a big movie, and he sort of couldn't get out of it. And he didn't like it, and he was honest. And he and Joe Dante didn't talk for years. Oh, wow. Until Joe Dante called him up and offered him this part as himself in Gremlins 2 where he gives Gremlins coming out on home video a bad review and then gets killed by (laughs) Gremlins and the funny thing I didn't know about it is that he showed up that day you know maybe still uh, you know easing back into his friendship with Joe Dante he showed up on set that day and there was no script and John Dante was like no just use your words <laughs> just, just, <laughs> so he wanted him to give the same bad review of Gremlins that he gave and then get torn apart by Gremlins uh, it, yeah, it was a great like that was just one it was a whole hour of fun stuff like that the weirdest thing that happened and I'm not going to say what she said but a woman stood up to ask a question about Quentin Tarantino it wasn't a it wasn't within the the, um, format. The, the format, but she started to ask a question about Quentin Tarantino and then just fully spoiled the end of what's upon a time in Hollywood into the mic in front of everyone. Oh, wow. Um, which because I'm me, I had already gone out of my way to look up the ending of what's upon a time in Hollywood, even though I haven't seen it yet. Um, but I was, uh, I was shocked and a lot of people were having, having were now seen it or having seen what's upon a time in Hollywood. That's interesting. I, yeah. 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 I have a theory about what the ending is, but I'm not going to ask you. Well, and I'm yeah, going to say I the reason I looked it up is either. the reason I looked it up is because I had a theory and I, it turns out I was right. Okay. So uh, we'll, we'll see um, uh, how it turns out. But uh, yeah, it was crazy. And I think to their, uh, I think wisely the Maltons just kind of like moved on to, to the question, yeah. but there are a lot of people who were shouting like, Spoiler! Just the word spoiler. <laughs> yeah. And then there are also a ton of people because the the next panel was the Dragon Ball Z 30th anniversary panel. Mm-hmm. And so I was with a, a friend, friend of the show, Patrick Starr, and he was like, I think most people in this room probably don't really care or aren't really listening because they're just waiting yeah. for the Dragon Ball Z 30th anniversary. But yeah, that was weird. I ended up uh, tweeting about it and kind of tweeting back and forth with Jesse Malton a little bit uh, uh, about it because she was pretty stunned by it too. But anyway, it was, it was a fun panel, but mm-hmm. um, I'm sure there are plenty of people who are glad they didn't go yeah (laughs) that's crazy once again we talked about this a couple weeks ago this is i realize that the format just requires people in the audience to talk but by and large it's usually a mistake and this is an example why (laughs) yes uh yeah i don't know what you're like i which is i'm trying to like and this is what i was like tweeting with jesse mold about like trying to give this woman the benefit of the doubt like 
did did this woman see an advanced screening somehow and not realize that what she was saying constituted a spoiler? Because the only other option is that she knew and intentionally got up and framed her whole question around, I'm going to spoil this movie for a thousand something people. Yeah. Yeah. Does the regular layperson know about, like, spoiling movies? Is that... But is the regular layperson... Does the regular layperson have a badge to (laughs) Comic-Con? That's a good question. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. That's tough. All right, what, uh, we've been taking way too way too long. I'm sorry. Um, what did you like on Thursday? Um, three things or just one thing? Just one thing for now. We'll go back and sure. forth. Sure. Uh, so I saw the pilot for Evil. All right. Uh, which we talked about. Um, it was interesting. Not, I won't say bad, because it wasn't bad. Um, it's very weird. Uh, so Evil is the show with, Luke Cage, Mike Coulter, and Lamont Bishop. Let me Lamont Bishop, <laughs> Luke Cage, uh, Mike Coulter playing a priest in training who teams up with Katya Herbers, who's like this um, psychologist who used to work for the DA, but she her relationship with the DA has soured, and so he's recruiting her to be like, "Hey, I'm working on all of the Catholic Church's backlog of unexplained mysteries. Come join my team because." we need somebody who understands science. So what I liked about the show was that they take a very like nobody's side is right. Mm -hmm. What is right in the end is right. So at the end of the pilot, there's like a sort of scientific or facts based explanation for what has happened that has happened. And like, um, Mike Coulter's character is like not bothered by that because the whole point of this is to explore whether or not it's something religious that mm. you know would require like an exorcism or something church based um, or if it's just you know a crazy person or a killer who's doing things to make himself look like he's crazy um, so it sounds that, very X-Files-esque yeah and oh my god I cannot believe I didn't think of that when I wrote that stupid review um <laughs> Yeah, it it is. So I liked that aspect of it. Um, I was less of there is some supernatural stuff going on. Um, There are demons in the pilot that go by American names. And like Robert and Michelle King came out and said, like, these are demons that are obsessed with Americana. So they have like George and Roy. And I'm like, okay, I get that. But it also sounds really stupid when like a demon is like my name is George you know like yeah. the way I, like this it just I don't know when you said American names I thought it was gonna be like Budweiser no <laughs> <laughs> but just like that's just it's because this is airing on CBS I feel like there's not enough bite to the show like there just needed to be something a little more like if this was excuse me airing on like an AMC or an FX or even ABC if we want to be on just regular basic cable like I think ABC would have given them a little more latitude to be a little meaner maybe a little nastier you mean AMC? AMC you say you said ABC well no ABC as well because like ABC American Crime will always be forefront of my mind like what they were able to do with you know that show 
on basic cable is a lot more than like a oh, CBS would do. And even NBC had Hannibal, but like yeah. of, of the networks, CBS seems like the one least likely to really give yeah. them a lot of room. So like the tone of the show is just, it's just weird. So like you can like the ideas, but it just, it still feels very like CBS procedural, but like also very familiar because the King's style translates across their shows. So like, you hear the familiar sound of strings and I'm immediately reminded of how like the good wife, you know, credit sequence would come in with uh, that theme, which is all strings. And so I was like, okay, so I'm in, I'm in good hands, but also I just feel like they don't, they just don't have the tone and maybe that can write itself if CBS gives them the latitude to be a little more shocking, maybe a little more daring. Um, and Michael Emerson was there for, you know, five minutes. Yeah. Well, I've, I, I don't watch much TV anymore, but I've always said there's there's no great TV show whose best episode is its pilot. So it could always get better, is what I'm saying. Gotham. Oh, wait, no. no the, show, the show is not great. That's what I'm saying. Sorry. There, are, there yeah. are shows where the best episode is the pilot. Sure. There's no great show where the best episode is yes. the pilot. Yeah, fair enough. So there, there is room. Um, I like Mike Coulter, and I think that the Kings have given him his best material. I mean, Lamont Bishop is... A, phenomenal character so I think that they will write him very interestingly but like at the moment he's sort of a stock character and it's like we're projecting things onto him like the demon like visits the lead actress I can't remember what her character's name is and is like oh like do you think he's sexy and it's like okay so like we have eyes like we understand we know what my culture looks like that is not a plot point here <laughs> if that's not going to affect their working <laughs> relationship if that you know like that's just it was, it was just there and it, he hasn't really gotten he didn't really get to do anything interesting in the pilot so my hope is that will change but alright well the next thing uh, that I ended up just sitting through because I wanted to be uh, I wanted to be in the room for the thing after it turns out I could have just walked in but uh, <laughs> I ended up sitting through a panel one of multiple panels that were sort of tr- Stan Lee tributes mm-hmm. and, but this was a bunch of people who had worked at Disney or Marvel who didn't like weren't these aren't like friends or artists who work these are just people that like knew him telling just sharing stories and it ended up being a very emotional sure uh, yeah. uh, very emotional and then also a lot of laughs a lot of the stories are really funny the one the one that I'll tell and then I'll throw it back to, to Terrence um, was there was a guy who, uh, who, who worked at, at Disney but actually before he worked at Disney, he had a job, uh, basically being a red carpet escort. Mm-hmm. Like he, he would stand by the where the limos are when the famous person comes out. You walk with them down the red carpet. You're essentially security to make sure mm-hmm. no one yeah. fucks with them. And uh, then you walk back. And he said he didn't do that very long job very long because he wasn't very good at it. He was kind of just hanging out, hoping no one noticed, so he didn't have to walk down the red carpet and just looking at. And he, he worked the premiere of the Avengers in 2012. And so he was like, oh, there's Scarlett Johansson, there's Chris Evans. And then the one that he was actually starstruck by was Stan Lee. So he actually positioned himself so he was near Stan Lee. And I like, was trying to think of something to say. And the only thing he could think to say was, looking good, uh, looking good, Stan. And Stan Lee, without a beat, turned around and went, yeah, great taste. He got great taste, kid. Uh, which is such a great Stan Lee, yeah. Yeah. perfect Stan Lee uh, story. Um, and yeah, so they, uh, 
they they did that and then they ended by showing a um or they started by showing a montage of a lot of like uh, fan tribute art that had, that had been made mm-hmm. and they ended by showing a montage of all of his marvel movie cameos oh. um mm-hmm. uh, so that was uh that was fun terrence uh i also was in a place where i was waiting for the next panel because i walked into hall h early because on thursday you can pretty much line up to get into Hall H whenever you want. Yeah. Um, because there was nothing, even I knew they were bringing Tom Cruise for that stupid Paramount panel. And yeah, it still didn't go. Um, I just, I was like, Oh, they're not just going to bring Terminator. They're going to leave like 20 minutes and have Tom Cruise come out. And he did. And I wasn't was in the promoting? room. Top gun. Oh, right. Duh. Yeah. Get it together. Um, <laughs> but I sat through a Marvel games panel. Okay. And I was like, first I was like why is this in Hall, Hall H like I guess literally there was nothing else for them to put yeah um, but it was really interesting to see sort of the games division and what they're working on they have like an Iron Man uh, VR game where you can fly like your Tony Stark and they showed off some footage and then I don't know if you heard all the controversy about the Avengers game that they're putting out no so basically you know, we have so ingrained in our minds like Chris Evans and Hemsworth and, and RDJ and Ruffalo and, and Renner and, and Scarlett Johansson of what they look like. They, they're putting out a game and those characters look absolutely nothing hmm. like those actors mm-hmm. or the comic counterparts. They actually look really crazy um, if you like stare at just the characters themselves. But so I was like, oh, they're about to preview this footage. It's going to go so bad. And, like, the footage was amazing oh. of all of the Avengers fighting and on, the, like, the Golden Gate Bridge with, like, a helicarrier in the back and trying to keep San Francisco from blowing up. And, like, each, you can jump into each character and do specific things. And just, like, the oh, gameplay wow. was really, really cool. And so I was like, even though these characters look dumb as hell, <laughs> I think I might, you know download that game or if it's for mobile and, and play it. Okay, I was going to ask like what kind of format it is or yeah. if it was a console game or something. It, it might be a console game because it seemed really involved, but like yeah, it was pretty that was pretty epic to see all of the Avengers fighting. And they're fighting Taskmaster um, which who is allegedly going to be in the Black Widow movie. <laughs> According to the concept art they were giving away. Okay. All right, uh, the last thing I'll talk about for Thursday was my most anticipated panel of the convention. Didn't really disappoint at all, and that was the uh, 20th anniversary home movies reunion. Mm-hmm. Uh, a great show. So you had Lauren Bouchard, who's at Comic-Con every year because he does Bob's Burgers now, and you had uh, H. John Benjamin, who's at Comic-Con every year for the same reason. No. Um, and then you had... Uh, uh, now I'm forgetting her name. Who vo- She was one, a producer in home movies, and she voiced Melissa. Her name was Melissa... Galski, Galski, something like that. Anyway, she was there, and then Brendan Small, who was the mm-hmm. lead uh, voice, he played Brendan, uh, voiced Brendan on, on on home movies, and was uh, um, kind of became a co-creative force with Lauren Bouchard. Something they talked about, um, uh, and I'll say because Melissa, I can't remember her name, Galski. Anyway, she also works on Bob's Burgers. So one of the question was, <laughs> one of the questions during, during the Q and A, someone asked, "Have you guys ever thought about?" working together again and like <laughs> like Lauren Bouchard and John Benjamin and Melissa Garcia were like we do we work together every day uh, and John Benjamin said we you know we, we fixed the problem meaning we got rid of Brennan Smalls funny yeah. funny joke um, uh, Melissa Galski yes Galski yes, yes. Um, 
but uh, yeah, the, um, Brennan Small, I've, I've always liked uh, him a lot. He's a very funny comedian, funny writer, also a big metalhead because uh, he created Metalocalypse. Um, and he also is, I was, I, I felt like uh, uh, validated because sometimes I will have a weirdly good memory for certain things and people will think I'm weird that I remember things that happened so long ago. Um, and he apparently is like that too because he was like telling everything about the lead up to um like the the initial making of 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 home movies and like john benjamin was like really did we do that i don't know <laughs> uh but he, he like remembered everything and like and lauren bouchard talked about said some very nice things about brennan small about how like because lauren bouchard came from dr Katz mm-hmm. in the first five episodes of home movies which were made for upn and it was canceled five episodes or it was essentially canceled I'll tell the story in a second. It was canceled before the first episode had finished airing, but they had made five episodes, so they aired them. <laughs> um, but, um, uh, so the first five episodes of Home Movies are largely, like, Kirby Enthusiasm style. They were improvised in the studio, and then mm-hmm. they had a line outline, they improvised, and they animated it later. And then Brennan Small, once they got picked up by Adult Swim, Brennan Small basically was like, I think we should actually write this show. Uh, and he joked that he was just, like, doing it so he'd have a portfolio once they got canceled. So he'd actually have something <laughs> to show. Yeah. I, I, I wrote on this. And, and Lauren Richard said that basically Bob Spurgers wouldn't be what it was if he hadn't learned from uh, working with Brennan Small how to actually write, uh, write TV. But the... Um, and there were a lot of funny stuff. A lot of funny stuff. I, I talked last week about the uh, John Benjamin going DVD player, and someone did that, and so that was fun. <laughs> um, uh, but the story that I loved uh, about so the night that it premiered uh, on UPN, Lauren Bouchard at the offices had a a party, and they were in Boston, and so the show was actually being delayed in Boston because of a Boston Bruins game. Hmm. But it started airing in the rest of the country. So he gets, he gets a call. He, he's got people upstairs drinking in hand waiting for the show to start. Uh-huh. He gets a call from UPN in which his UPN contact says, this is what Lauren Bouchard paraphrased, but said, I would be fired if I told you there was any hope of this show being picked up. <laughs> um, and so then he has to hang up and go join the party if he yeah. wins, knowing Jeez. that, that uh, they're going to be done after five episodes. And then uh, uh, Adult Swim came in and yeah. uh, say the day we got four full, four full seasons out of home movies. It was uh, it was a great show and it was yeah it was a really fun and and funny panel. Cool. Yeah, my last thing that I did on Thursday was the His Dark Materials panel, um, which is why I was actually in Hall H. They screened a trailer that they then dropped online yeah. two seconds later. I was like, can we get some new footage, anything? This uh, is what I'm sorry. I, I say this every year, <laughs> but I want to fit it in somewhere. It used to be that when you went to these Comic-Con panels, you didn't just get the exclusive trailer. Yeah. You got, like... We're going to show you a scene that yeah, no one's... Yeah. So even if they drop a trailer, it's like you've seen a scene. You've gotten yeah. a taste of the movie, you know? I got to see uh, Rain Wilson and Super beat the shit out of the guy in the movie theater line. That, that whole <laughs> scene, you know? Yeah. They didn't just show a trailer. I got to see the Gina Carano-Michael Fassbender fight from Haywire mm-hmm. front to back, you know? And that was cool. It made me feel... Leaving Comic-Con, I felt like yeah. I have an idea of what this movie's going to be that other people don't have. But now they just... It's just a lie in a different form. Trailers, yeah. are, trailers are lies. So and, like, uh, <laughs> it was, you know, it was nice to be in the room, uh-huh. right? I wanted to, you know, Lin-Manuel got the biggest applause out of anybody on the panel. Um, 
which was really fascinating because, mm-hmm. you know, Professor X was on the panel, uh, as well as Alice Morgan and uh, X-23. So, Wait, which Professor X? James McAvoy. Oh, okay. <laughs> but not, he's, he's not my professor. Not Picard. <laughs> who was also at Comic-Con. Who was also at Comic-Con, yes. Uh, so was George Takei. So we have very interesting. Uh, Star Trek had a big presence. Um, but yeah, they seem really jazzed for it. I, what was heartening to me is to hear the producer talk about that she understood that Philip Pullman wrote an adult novel that children should read with Mm -hmm. these his dark materials trilogy um and that they're not going to shy away from sort of the darker aspects of the story or the story or in the in the way that you know the golden compass really took the teeth out of like the movie version of the golden compass Mm -hmm. which had a great cast you know james bond and Academy Award winner Nicole Kidman and Eva Green and so you say James Bond I mean Daniel Craig oh, okay um, the current okay James Bond uh, I just Pierce Brosnan is my James Bond yeah and that's fine I like Pierce uh, I mean, that's actually not true I've seen more Connery ones than but yeah ones. so that was hearing her talk about that and being like is not anti-religion it's more like anti like oppressive organization um, but that they're not sort of shying away from like in the story it is a religious organization therefore there are those overtones so they're not gonna you know pull any punches so I was great. that's always the biggest litmus test with like a Philip Pullman story it's like are you going to make this more palatable to like not piss people off but then in doing so like the story it, it's a nice cute adventure story but you need sort of those bigger overarching things particularly when you get towards the end of the story and like things happen that are even more overt you can't like not have that foundation at the beginning so all right on to friday yes so friday i kicked off with uh one of the two sort of 50th anniversary panels and this one is the one i was most excited about it was called the exhibitors of comic-con it was people who had for a long time or in some cases still did bring large booths to sell mm-hmm. um uh, we, i learned a lot of interesting things such as how expensive it is um to for a booth yeah not just for a booth but also if you're a bookseller mm-hmm. and your bookstore is on the east coast you have to ship all of that stuff get, books are heavy getting yeah. books from one side of the country to the other um, is that in a, uh, on its own is very expensive. I also learned so one thing that the so the booth fee is a lot, but uh, a, a whole lot of money. Um, uh, and it gets bigger the bigger your booth is, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing I learned is Comic Con has a thing. So uh, the convention center or the city or whatever has a thing when you when you're at the loading dock. There's a there's like a tax or a, a fee for unloading stuff, but Comic-Con has a deal. If you are there, as long as no one from Comic-Con or from the convention center has to unload, if you're there to meet your stuff and sign off and everything, then Comic-Con covers that, that fee. Mm. And that, so one guy told a story about bringing a multi semi trucks full of books and he was there, but there was a mistake and he got charged anyway. Comic-Con ended re- reversing it. That charge alone was 12 grand. Just, just for unloading all his, all his books. Uh, and he's, he said he had to like, he had to pay for his hotel room at the end of the convention with the cash that he'd gotten 
from selling books because his credit card had been maxed out because he didn't realize they'd yeah. accidentally charged him $12,000. Oh I anyway. never thought about the fact that they had to ship all those books. Yeah. Yeah. That was something I had never, it never occurred to me. Before. Not to say this is similar, mm-hmm. but when I go to like the various like film festivals that I go to and like, and talk at, and then I have my table and I have my mm-hmm. books, I take like, 50 copies of my book with me but I don't have them shipped because that's expensive so I just carry them mm-hmm. and it's like I wish that I had paid to ship these but yeah. then it's like yeah but then I'm not expensive. making any yeah. money if I sell yeah. them and then it's one of those things that like I suddenly find when I did it once I was like you know before I just wanted to sell these so that I could bring in some money and get the get my books out there you know now it's just like I don't want to haul this shit yeah. back to Los Angeles yeah. so I just want to unload these that's why all the booksellers <laughs> on Sunday are like 80% oh sure off. yeah <laughs> um but that's not the reason so there's one main reason I want to go to this panel and that's because of a man named Chuck Krasansky mm, I saw who, your tweets about him yes who runs Mile High Comics out of Denver and came to Comic-Con and sold books for like 40-something years and then very publicly stopped coming in 2017, I think. Mm -hmm. I think he's had two years away, and then um, he's only back this year, not as an exhibitor, just as a guest of of Comic-Con. Very publicly stopped selling, had a lot of complaints about about Comic-Con and how, how long-time vendors like him were treated. He was a guy who had his first Comic-Con in the 70s at the Cortez Hotel, wherever it was at the, at the time. He was homeless, and he hitchhiked with his books hmm. to, you know, and, and slept in, like, a homeless camp or whatever, um, and, uh, and you know, went on to to uh, found Mile High Comics and, and, and be uh, something of a success um, in that, although there were not very high margins. He's an obsessive collector. He said his goal in life, this is paraphrasing, but he said his goal in life is every night when he lays his head down on his pillow, he wants to own more comic books than he did the night before. <laughs> that's like, mm. his, that's his purpose in life. Um, but he very publicly stopped coming and I wanted to go to this panel to hear him. And he, st- he did not disappoint because he started off saying, the only reason I accepted Comic Con's invitation was so I could come to this panel and call them out on something, um, which is great. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, and basically he said the longtime sellers like him because there's a couple others like Bud Plant I think has also stopped coming, um, but uh, these longtime sellers, their his his argument was their base and their ability to make uh, Comic Con San Diego Comic Con financially viable for themselves went away starting the year that Comic-Con stopped allowing you to buy your badge for next year while you were at that, hmm. which is something they stopped doing in maybe like 2012. Yeah. That's right. When I was considering going to a con yeah. is when they stopped that process. Um, and part of it, I, I, I mean, I, I understand why they stopped it because I know people who did that every year and it became such a thing that you'd, you'd essentially have to give up a day of your convention to wait in line to buy badges. Mm-hmm. That's how bad it was getting. Um, so I understand kind of why they, they did that and also wanting to change. And they do, if you if you have been to the previous year's Comic-Con, it is easier to get into the next year's. You're not guaranteed the way it was when you could buy a badge there. But um, So they still make some room for those sort of legacy people. But that was his, that was his big complaint. But then he also went on to to say that 
um, that's just him personally and his own thing. He also understands mm-hmm. that San Diego Comic-Con is not like other comics conventions, that it's something special. And his, I thought it was very poetic. His analogy was, um, you can celebrate the beauty of the butterfly and still mourn the caterpillar. Um, yeah, that's yeah. Right. But maybe part of the reason, he, so here's what else has happened in this guy's life. Maybe part of the reason that he has such great perspective now is he's doing great. Um, Chuck Rosansky he's also he's uh, I'm not sure he was ever closeted before but he's very out as a drag queen now he introduced himself as like my name's Chuck Rosansky I um, run my comics I also wear dresses <laughs> like that's how he introduced okay, himself okay great yes <laughs> um, and uh, and, all, and the, so the other thing that's happened is that since um since then over the uh, a few years ago or I'm not sure when exactly this happened because I can't remember what year um Colorado legalized marijuana, but Chuck Rosansky was in Morgan's Perlux documentary about Comic-Con since that time, which was 2010, I think. Um, he sold some of his rarest comic books in order to buy a 65,000 foot warehouse in Denver, outside of Denver to store his collection and, and sell out of and ship out of. And then three months after he bought that, they passed the legalized weed thing and his building, which apparently had sent, uh, was unwanted. It's set op- uh, open for years was one of the few in the area that was approved to be zoned to grow marijuana. So now he, I'm not sure, he, I'm not sure if he grows marijuana or if he just rents out the space, uh-huh. but basically he's had, I made $5 million overnight. <laughs> now he, what? now he is a multimillionaire drag queen weed grower <laughs> and comic book collector wow. in Denver. <laughs> uh, and so he's, he's doing great. And he was a very fascinating, I feel that's bad amazing. that I just talked about him cause there were other really interesting people yeah, I mean, uh, that's... on the panel, but he it was, uh, to, to make time to go to this panel just to see him. Yeah. It could not have been more rewarding. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. All right. So I went, uh, on Friday to a costume designer panel, uh, for the DC universe. Um, because as people know or might have seen on my social media, I do cosplay. Um, so I'm always interested in the costume mm-hmm. folks and how they do things. And particularly with DC Universe, they have some really crazy things that they're doing with costumes. Um, so you might be familiar with Doom Patrol, but in Doom Patrol, Robot Man is a guy. So that suit that he's wearing is all practical. Um, practical to the point to where there's a scene in the show where they need to have him magnetized and hanging from a giant magnet that's on the ceiling and they actually did that um what i really loved about this panel was it was less talking about like oh like we created this costume out of this fabric and more like the depth of a costume department on a television show like the um the head sort of costumers over all of them but like she has like a specific person on set who got started in cosplay actually whose job is it is to make sure that like the practicality of the suit is working on the day then they've got like specific people for specific costumes certain people doing just the patterning certain people just doing embroidery and all of these things and you really you start to realize like the big machine that goes into to making these things because you like like Ruth Carter for example won the Oscar for Black Panther and like her costume design and her vision is really really great but like she had like a whole team of people behind mm-hmm. her and you don't really get an understanding of how that works on day to day production um, but this costume panel was really interesting they had like a woman who used to you know work on astronaut suits like and now she's working on <laughs> DC Universe costumes yeah. um, like Hawk and Dove who are in Titans 
like the wings on that costume are maybe like 30, 40 pounds, but like your actors also have to be able to move and talk and not feel yeah. like they're being weighed down by 30, 40 pounds. Um, so just figuring out the different ways to make all of that work or updating a suit between seasons and like, what are the East different Easter eggs? So I really enjoyed getting into the craft of like these crazy superhero costumes. It's one of the things that I liked about the, the Amazon tick is that they essentially season one was split in half. Yeah. And when season when the second half aired, uh, the tick was in a in a slightly more updated costume. And Arthur looks and he's like, "What is going on with that?" And he goes, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> and then and then season two comes yeah. along, and his costume has changed again, and they have the exact same exchange where he's just like, "I don't know what you're saying." And yeah. uh, it's very funny. Uh, oh, my turn now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Friday was kind of a lighter day for me, but I, it was the day that I really. Uh, walked the floor mm. um, how was that experience uh, it's always a little bit fun as long as uh, what, what happens is I'm having fun when I'm just walking looking around mm-hmm. and then I won't necessarily see something that I want to see I'll see something that reminds me of something I want to see and I'll look up on my phone mm. like where's that booth and then once I have a destination in mind, it gets really frustrated. Yeah, sure. Because it, it's when you're just going with the flow and like, oh, I guess I'll turn left here because there's less traffic. Then yeah. you know, suddenly across some really cool like um, indie comic line, you know, line or artist or something, uh, something like that. I've um, forgotten how crazy the floor was, and I'm not a big groups person. Yeah, groups of people person. So like. I was like, oh, my God, there's so many people here. Just yeah. move. Get out of the way, please. Uh, and then my wife texted me, and she was like, um, can you get something? She wanted something for our nephew, who's really into the Universal Monsters. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and he's also into skateboarding. Mm-hmm. And there Plus was a booth. went to the bodega, Super 7. Uh, I did go to that. That's right. Yeah. I, I ended up getting him uh, some little mini figurines of all the universe monsters. But there's another booth, and I'm forgetting the name of, that had, it could have been more perfect, a... Okay, so apparently skate decks are really in... Th- these things yeah. happen, like, uh, like... I was really surprised uh, to see, yeah. There's a bunch of different, like, skate decks is a big thing now. The, these things come in waves. Like, t- Tiki Mugs has been a big thing for mm-hmm. the last few years. Did you see that, Mon- Tyler? Did you see that Mondo Shars t- uh, Shark Jaws? tiki mug no i did not it looks it's a, meant to be a cup that you could drink out of mm-hmm. but it looks like it looks jaws, like the shark oh yeah. neat and then it has it also comes with a swizzle stick that has a little like lady swimming at the top so you can like stick it in the top oh, i'm looking it up right anyway, now um but anyway <laughs> but no they oh. had this one booth had a skate deck that looked like the creature from the black lagoon mm. and i was like it's perfect yeah and i was like i'll buy that and she was like we're out of that one and i wanted to be like well, no, you're not. Yeah, there's one right there. There's a display one right there, but uh, I, I didn't have the, the guts to say that. So oh. I ended up getting him some other um, uh, other Universal Monster stuff. But then I also have, like, the... I don't know, do you ever uh, kick yourself where you're, like... You, you walk past a booth, and you're like, oh, that looks interesting. I should come back to that. Mm-hmm. And you don't make note of where it is, and then you can't find it again. Oh, yes. my, yes. Yeah, so there is... Uh, I'm a big fan of the author, Neil Stevenson, and he has a new uh, book out this year, and there was a booth that had a bunch of signed copies, like yeah. signed hardcover copies, and I was like, oh, I'm going I'm to come mm-hmm. back for that. I never saw it again the rest of the time. I could not remember where it was. <laughs> and you can't look up on the app, like, sign Neil Stevenson books. Yeah. Like, I, have, I, I should have known to make note of where it was. Uh, so these mugs 
you need a straw. Yes, if you plan to drink, yeah. yeah, like you can't yeah, really drink out of this. Display. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, why not have functionality as well? <laughs> yeah, They're coming uh, out with the Sorcerer Mickey one. They just announced that today. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what else uh, I saw on the floor that was. Uh, yeah, uh, the thing I didn't do this year that I've never done that I always mean to do is to go up to the sales pavilion and donate blood. Mm. Um, they have a blood drive every year, um, and I always I always forget to do it. Mm-hmm. And they always have a giveaway if you donate blood. You get today. Yeah. This year it was Endgame T-shirts. Mm. Uh, for a while it was True Blood stuff because which know, is yeah nice tie-in. Um, <laughs> my first my first years, or no, I guess I started going to Comic Con in 2006. But like I have. A, when I I associate True Blood so much with Comic Con because when True Blood came yes. around they were like for years it was like the badges there was a True Blood comic book one year mm-hmm. there was like uh, the Dublin Square Bar which is now the Dubliner but you, Tyler and I used to have yep. our Battleship Pretension meetups at the Dublin Square uh, had a whole like free drinks thing with True Blood uh, yeah HBO used to really show up they still do but now yeah. I feel like these things have become more about the activation offsite. Mm-hmm. They have to wait forever yeah, to get the into. Companies are spending money on the activations and not on providing free Wi-Fi for the attendees. Yeah, like Seen Wolf used to do. Uh, yes, that honestly, I, I almost want the show to come back to because <laughs> I was like, that was really hard to cover at the convention with no. <laughs> Uh, well, you can you can pay. Yeah, twelve ninety five a day. Absolutely yeah. not. No way. <laughs> All right. Uh, what else did you do on on Friday? Um, so I went to the character of music panel uh, hosted by a good friend, Chandler Poling of White Bear PR. Uh, and what I like about how he constructs his panels is he'll like have composers, but then also like either the director or the showrunner. In this case, the video game producer as well. Um, there to sort of have a conversation that's less about like oh like I put these notes here and it's like a little bit of process but also working relationships so Tyler Bates was there um, and he Tyler Bates is doing the musical for that new Cirque du Soleil show called Run which is based off of cinema stunts so there's like eight different chapters it was written by Robert Rodriguez Kim Barrett is doing the costume so like a real like actual movie production but Cirque du Soleil show and so he talked a lot about like what the process was like for writing music for a live production mm-hmm. um, you know they talked about uh, for this guy named Freddie who's the composer on the Dragon Prince him and the showrunner were there and they were talking about like working on a TV schedule and what that means for a composer but also like the Dragon Prince is super diverse and how like that type of medieval fantasy kids show can't sound like other medieval fantasy kids shows because you have all these different races and ethnicities and disabilities and sexualities and all of that in there and it's set you know with world with dragons and things so like it needs to sound a little different so they talked about the process of creating that and he said that he doesn't get the episodes in advance which i thought was really interesting so he doesn't read the scripts the showrunners won't let him read the scripts hmm. or see the episodes super far in advance. And he said that's actually helped him out when composing because now it's like he's the audience and he's going on the journey with us. So he doesn't have like the time to like think and ruminate and sketch out and, you know, know like down the line that this character is going to die. It's all sort of new to him when he gets the episodes yeah. and he can compose it. So I thought that was a really interesting <clears throat> way of working. 
All right. All right. Are we still on Friday? We're still on Friday. Oh, boy. Uh, Did you have another panel? Uh, I was going to talk about... Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, very stressful time at work, so I'm actually working while we're doing the podcast. I'm yes. very sorry. But... Uh, uh, you should tell them, uh, excuse me, I'm doing a podcast right now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and it will be the first time they've heard about the podcast at work. Uh, some of these people, yes. Yeah, no, yes. Um, uh, what was I going to say? Okay, so last thing is, is uh, I got to go to a little party, cause, not because I'm mm. cool, but because I happened, like someone that I... Because you know people. It's someone that I worked with at a video store 20 years ago. Oh, wow. He's married to someone who worked at So you at know Marvel, people so who know people. It's just a total coincidence. So I got to go. Very Hollywood. Uh, yeah, so I got to go to a fun party. Got a lot of uh, Which party free was it? drinks. Which IGN? Uh, I'm not going to say. Um, mm. uh, I'm not going to say this one because, yeah. I actually did go. I went to the Expanse party. Uh-huh. And I went to the Nat Geo party. That's mm-hmm. not them. Those are things that I got invited to because of yeah. Battleship Pretension. I'm not going to say which uh, party I got to go to. Okay. But, um, I think I know which one. Uh, it was a daytime poolside party. Ooh. So, yeah, I don't. Yeah, it's. Uh, okay. Um, but anyway, had, had, had some good uh, celebrity sightings there. Um, you had uh, the Maltons once again sure. showed up. Um, the great Felicia Day. Uh, mm-hmm. Was there and uh, kind of excitingly, um, uh, Misha Collins. Okay, yes, Castiel, Castiel. Uh, and Brandon Routh. Hey, he's a very handsome man. I would have uh, died because <laughs> I'm such a big Superman fan, and, and I always feel bad that he never got a and that, second crack at it. Okay. Although he is. Yeah, I read that. In uh, the big Arrowverse crossover oh, okay. that they're doing, he's getting to play That's great. Superman again. Yeah. Well, I, heard, I wasn't going to say this because it could be taken as me being like, because I hate when people, I hate when people are like, uh, like Steve Gutenberg, you used to be famous, now you're not anymore. What a loser. It's like, hey, you were famous. <laughs> yeah. You did a great, Steve yeah. Gutenberg, you were great in those movies. Um, and so Brandon Ralph, I'm, I never saw Superman Returns, the show was great, but I heard him like, he was talking to someone. I was not eavesdropping. This is, I was actually on my way out of the party. But uh, he was talking to someone that he knew, and clearly there was another person who didn't know him. And I, they, in retrospect, they probably were talking about this upcoming role. Yeah. And so, because I heard him say to this person that he didn't know, he was like, very sort of humbly, he was like, I played Superman. And <laughs> I felt like, uh, I did feel like, not in a ha-ha way, but I didn't feel kind of bad. Like, yeah. he was so humble about it. Like, yeah. oh yeah, I was in this <sighs> major motion picture yeah. where he I played great. Superman. And, and he has to like, sort of humbly say to this person, like, I, I played Superman. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, was a, it was a nice, he seemed like a very nice guy. Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy that he's getting to do it again. Because he kind of got shafted there um yeah um alright so what's your final thing um, for I went to the terror infamy panel before I decided to test out the line for Hall H which was foolish in retrospect um for Saturday um oh so what time was the terror infamy panel it was I'm looking at this thing 445 to 545 yeah. you were never gonna get in right no to, to and Hall which H? you know it that's a that's a that's a Saturday story. Uh, okay. But the Terror Infamy looks really scary. Um, George Takei was there, which was great. The room was not packed, and I was like, "What kind of convention is this? That you have like a cast member from 
the original series of Star Trek there and like the room is not super filled yeah. uh, but they missed out on a really great panel they couldn't really give too much away because it's coming out relatively soon and, but the trailer looked really scary and the footage you know very creepy so I was excited for that uh, do you want so now my Hall H line okay yeah so they their process of handing out the wristbands the process for handing out wristbands is so much better now because they're like at 845 we'll hand them out and we'll hand them out until we you know the problem is you can start lining up at a certain time of the day and you can hold a space for five people yeah that is crazy like that's a lot of people if you're thinking about just they estimated that the amount of people in line when I got in line was about like 3,500 so like if nobody else could have jumped in front of me conceivably in the line like I might have gotten in yeah, um, the room holds a little under 7,000 right? yeah it's like 6 Oh, okay. Uh, but if you can hold a group of five people, but they have to, you can't get wristbands for five people. They have to. No, the they all have, have to, to be there. But the thing about the it is, like, we know what the start time of the wristbands is. Right. Mm. So at eight forty-five, everybody like who had somebody holding a space in line for them like rushed in. And if you have a group of like ten people who are sitting there all holding spaces for five people, now that's fifty people. Yeah. So I don't know what the solution to that is other than maybe like you can't hold groups yeah and everybody just has to get in line you know maybe um they'll just get in line whenever comic-con is really hard to cover from a press perspective when you don't get like a special thing from like a studio and you have to wait in line so like i did sorry real quick behind the curtains yeah unless you're like entertainment weekly or someone your press pass from comic-con is just free admission. It doesn't yeah, get you anything. Really bad. It gets, in, yeah. gets you on a bunch of email lists. You get a bunch of uh, press emails. So any special access to like press mm-hmm. rooms or getting into the, the 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 panels without waiting in line comes from the studios and the networks, whoever is putting on yeah. the panels. So yeah, everyone has to get their own. So I yeah. think I'm not going to do try for Hall H on Saturday ever again. Hmm. I mean, it used to be I, like, just because just because I felt like because like I did want to go to that gay geeks panel and I didn't end up going to that because I was like, oh, maybe if I get in line at like 530, I have a chance to make it in. And now I'm like, I can just I won't be in the room, but I can sit there and be just as excited for Mahershala Ali playing yeah. Bl- Blade in the comfort of the press room, even though the press room attendee was like, you know, this room closes in like 15 minutes. Everybody that was in there, we're like, <laughs> we're like typing away. Like we know we, we have to get this Marvel news out. Um, you know, I could be just excited doing that and then see all the rest of the panels. So that, that, that five people thing, cause it, when they first started doing the wristbands, mm-hmm. the idea was that there was no line until they started handing the wristbands out. The line didn't start until they started handing So the five people thing was like, once everyone had the wristbands, then you could, among your group of five, take turns going back and taking a shower, getting a nap or whatever, yeah, no. and hold the and hold your place in line all night. Um, but that didn't work because people start people started lining up at noon and for the f- uh, the first year or two Comic-Con was trying to like not officially sanction that line yeah and so what you had is a bunch of people at like near the like alongside the FX offsite or like places sort of like forming their own de facto 
lines, yeah. and then when eight o'clock or whatever wristband what time was, you had three lines who all thought they were the line all rushing to the wristbands at yeah. the same time. It was so Comic Con tried to make it easier, yeah, but I it think, didn't work. I think they've done a good job. They have a designated next day line spot that you can get in starting at like eight AM and the process of having a set time of when you're gonna start handing wristbands out is great. Yeah. I just don't know if I'm a fan of like everybody in the line being able to hold a spot for five people. Yeah, maybe when they started the next day line, they should have done away yeah, with that. Yeah, like but that's, that's... But that's also hiring more security because that's really hard to enforce, right? Yeah, so, or you just state as a policy, like, you can't hold right. space for people. Yeah. And, I, and I think the reason why it's kind of weird and why I feel sort of weird about it is that, like... I don't really know exactly what they're encouraging with it. I feel like it does take away from Friday's panels a bit. Like, I know they're, they're doing it because, you know, that's the reason why they put Marvel in the big movie studios on Saturdays. They want to be able to regulate how many people are in the convention center and trying to keep sort of the big, big things on Saturday when they know they're going to have the most people. Um... But also, I, I'm starting to feel like it's coming at a detriment of, like, the Friday panels because, you know, that's 6,000 people in a mm-hmm. line mm-hmm. that are not enjoying the rest of the things that you have to yeah. offer because yeah. they're trying to get this wristband. So I don't, I don't, there's really nothing, no perfect way other than just getting rid of the. It, maybe we could go down to, like, two, <laughs> two or three people. <laughs> Five is a lot. Um, all right, I'll jump to Saturday then. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to talk too much uh, about the other 15th anniversary panel I went because they did. So Thursday they they did Comic Con in the 70s. Friday they did Comic Con in the 80s. Oh, okay. Saturday they did Comic Con in the 90s. That's when I went to. Sunday they did Comic Con since 2000. So the only one of these decade ones I made it to was the 90s, but it was um, the, a really fascinating one because the. Um, I mean, I don't think. I would say Comic-Con becoming what it is didn't happen until the, the 2000s, but the level of growth from 1990 to 2000 or whatever uh, was pretty insane because that was them coming to the convention center. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, and that was kind of the part... The, th- that was also the decade where um, I think the city of San Diego started to embrace... Mm. comic-con because mm-hmm. i think um for a long time they were indifferent or maybe like when they f- i think when they first opened the convention center and in, 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 in comic-con international i don't know if it was called that yet but yeah but San Diego comic-con applied or tried to get into the convention center the city was like i don't know if that's what we want like and to see like by the end of the 90s that's crazy being, yeah like, San Diego, San Diego officially at least loves Comic-Con yeah. I don't know mm-hmm. if you ask every San Diego resident if they feel the same way you probably get a mixed bag of reactions there but officially the, San, the, the city of San Diego is very much behind Comic-Con mm-hmm. oh did you hear about the mayor of San Diego did you hear about this thing mm-hmm okay I certainly did I, I have not so the mayor of San Diego visited uh, Comic-Con and he visited the the, the Amazon Prime thing that, that, that Terrence went to on, on Wednesday which had uh, Carnival Row and the Expanse and uh, and the boys, boys um, sort of activations you could walk through. And he, according to Orlando Bloom and a number of other people there, not according to the mayor or his staff, mm-hmm. but Orlando Bloom is in 
Carnival Row. That's yes. why he's there. So um, he went to the Carnival Row activation. There were like cameras and stuff. And then once he realized what the premise of it is, which is that you're uh, when you enter the Carnival Row thing, you are like many of the characters in the show. You are an immigrant who is being very poorly treated and discriminated against and he's sorry the uh, kevin falconer is a republican uh uh mayor and according to orlando bloom once he was in front of the cameras once he once he learned what it was he said oh no i can't have anything to do with immigration and got out of there as fast <laughs> orlando bloom's line was that he his word was that he ran out of there yeah. um now, of course, the mayor's publicist and stuff and and, 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 yeah. and spokesperson is saying uh, Mayor Falconer had a very busy schedule. He couldn't stay very long at everything. But that is apparently, <laughs> according to Orlando Bloom and and others who were present. That's funny. Uh, and, I, yeah, I like that Orlando Bloom just told that story like, yeah, on the great. panel. Um, uh, yeah, so that's, that, was a, that was a fun Comic-Con story. Yeah. All right. So, um, yeah, so okay, yeah, Comic-Con in the 90s, it was great. It got big. Um, what did you do on Saturday? Uh, so I went to a panel with Bear McCreary. Oh, cool. Talking about kaiju monster movies and music. Uh, I ended up at a lot of music panels this Comic-Con. Um, but his was cool because he like walked us through all of these different monster movies and their themes. Um, and would it was basically like really interactive with the audience. So he'd be like, okay, so like if you were making a Godzilla theme, what would you want it to be? And then he played us the original and he's like, okay, so how do you feel about it? Like what are things that stood out to you? And then he played us his reorchestrated version of the theme and was like, what stood out to you differently? He showed a scene from Colossal, oh. which is really funny given that I feel like I was one of 10 people in that packed room that had actually seen Colossal and oh. he was showing a scene from the very end <laughs> that he did not set up in any way, which I'm kind of glad because now I'm like, okay, so maybe one of these people will see Colossal and they'll not really have an idea what the yeah. hell is going on at that moment and why it was so powerful. He played it without basically like the monster is catching and Anne Hathaway's character has traveled somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and the monster has caught Jason Sudeikis and he played that scene without the music and he's like, all right, so like, what are, what are you going to do as your, you're a composer? Like, what are the things you want to hit on? And then he played us his track and it was like really fascinating to see the different, like the audience <coughs> thoughts about it and then his approach to it and how there was a joke that you could hear a hundred percent of when there was no music. And he was like, I really wanted to lead that in, but like the composer and me just knew that I had to carry this theme through. So like, basically like sacrificing a joke to make the monster theme that he wrote at for that at the end of the colossal to work and it was just really you know he's a big nerd about kaijus and different things so mm-hmm. it was like fun to like see stuff from Godzilla King of Monsters and like you know the different types of music and how he orchestrated it in behind the scenes things of how to like get a you know Godzilla is a hero now mm-hmm but originally he was a villain, but like the original theme is still very like epic and hopeful and like heroic um, because that original theme was written for the soldiers who were coming to fight Godzilla. And then I guess the filmmakers of the 54 version swapped the soldier heroic theme Mm -hmm. for Godzilla's theme. And so that's how Mm -hmm. we've ended up with, with that. And I was like, that blew my mind. Um, 
because you think Godzilla and the original is sort of a villain, I think. I haven't yeah. seen the original one. Um, well, you have that, your chance on yeah, Criterion. Criterion. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm sure Aaron is going to make me watch all of them after I bought him that Godzilla uh, <laughs> toy. Um, so yeah, yeah, that was the first person I texted, by the way, <laughs> when I saw the thing was Aaron, our friend yeah. Aaron, who was a friend of the show. Uh, yeah, very excited about that. Yeah, no, that was pretty uh, cool. Godzilla box looks very cool. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. No, that was the end of the story. Oh, okay. So the next uh, panel I went to was another one I was really looking forward to, and it was a panel on uh, Chris Ware, the cartoonist, who was uh, someone I'm a big fan of. He mm-hmm. was, made his name with the Jimmy Corrigan uh, series, and then about six or seven years ago, he put out uh, a thing called Building Stories that uh, oh, got I a lot that. of... Yeah. Yeah, it's really great. Uh, Building Stories is a... Um, a box set comic like graphic novel yeah. that it has a bunch of different like short stories in it that all take place on the same apartment building and there's no right or wrong order to read them in um and he's uh, a very particular <laughs> very specific type of type of guy um and the panel was eventually it got to be about him promoting his new book rusty brown part one which he's been working on for like 20 years that's coming out um but a lot of it he just told his sort of story of how he became uh, a professional cartoonist. He also, just because he thought we'd be interested, he showed us pictures of his workspace at his home. And if you know Chris Ware's work, you would not be surprised to f- see that it is very meticulous and also very kind of affected. Like mm. his his like study and his like studio at his at his home um, in Chicago. It could have been a picture from 1953. Like there are no computers. There's nothing new at all. It uh-huh. looks like, yeah, yeah. It, it all looks like custom handmade furniture. And it's very like, like stepping into another world. And that's where he <laughs> works all day. And he's a very, very interesting, uh, so and he, very dryly funny guy. He hand draws on, on paper. Is um, that his style? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, okay. Um, and he, uh, he had some interesting things to say about comics as an art form and how he feels like, like going all the way back to the 1930s, comic artists became too interested in mimicking cinema mm. and doing like wide shot, close up reverse shot type of storytelling. That's in time to he, my other panel that I'm going to talk uh, about. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so he's talking about like, you, you know, comics is his own art form where you can do your own thing. Like, um, you can, and this is what he's, I'm sort of extrapolating at this point, but one of the things I like about his panels, um, is, well, to go back to the cinema thing and the wide shot and close up is that when you're looking at a still image with your eye, you can do that yourself. You know what I'm saying? Like you can look at the panel and take it in and mm-hmm. then go, Oh, but there's also this thing over here that he needs me that, that I need to yeah. pay attention to. And you can do, you can zoom in mm-hmm. on your own as the reader in one panel. Uh, and so that was interesting. And then he talked about Rusty Brown, which is coming out. The first volume is nearly 400 pages long. Um, and because Chris Ware is the very particular type of guy that he is, the dust jacket for the hardcover, you can take it off and unfold it and refold it. And there are actually like four different covers. If you don't, you know, you don't like the cover, you can fold it, refold it and put it. And also when part two comes out and concludes it, you can take the two dust jackets off together and they sort of form a full, uh, intricate like imagery that interplays with, with one another uh, and he had a lot of fun uh, <laughs> uh, showing us that he also created an animated trailer for Rusty Brown which was really 
funny. It was just like an introduction to the the characters. Yeah. Um, and it was like, yeah, it was a very a very fun panel. Yeah, I went to a comics workshop panel about panel description. Um, because I'm interested in comics and how they're created, and I was really like, oh, so like as a writer, when you're writing the script, writing a script for a comic book is completely different than writing a script for um, a movie or a TV show. Like you're not supposed to put in all the details. They're like, you get one. You're supposed to have one action per panel, and which I thought was really fascinating because, like, as a somebody who writes, I'm always like, oh, like let me describe down to like this blade of grass was like this. They're like, no, like that is supposed to be the artist domain. So it's oh, really, okay. really fascinating to hear him talk about like not needing to go from a wide to the medium to the close up because you can do that sort of all in one panel, which is something that those artists were advocating mm-hmm. for. They were like the simpler it can be to then let the artist, you know, it's supposed to be this collaborative medium and the artist has their interpretation and they're just going to try and help you. And there's like differing styles for how to write panel description. Like Marvel, for instance, it used to be like very, very descriptive of like just writing prose essentially of what is happening within a panel, which, you know, some artists like and some artists don't. You have people like Alan Moore who famously, you know, write like pages of description for like one page of a comic book because of just how meticulous we'll be talking about Alan Moore again in a second oh um and that's interesting uh yeah so they talked about that um and then but then like one of the guys was like you know we had this issue the splash page where like we needed a whole bunch of objects and he was like the only direction I gave to the artist was to make sure that like a certain amount certain objects were in the picture because they pay off later down the story but then like 90% of the objects in the picture like the artist came up with on his own of just pulling cool stuff in that he remembered from his memory so yeah that was a really sort of interesting peek behind the curtain from Mm -hmm. like writers and artists of how they like to work um yeah I thought that was really interesting to see the the artist being like do not give us pages and pages of stuff yeah and the writers being like you probably shouldn't but like we understand yeah (laughs) Um, last panel well actually there was a thing about the Chris Ware panel that I wanted to tell um, I can't I forget the story he showed he, uh, he was showing us so much of his personal life and he showed us these drawings that he made when he was a kid and he told the story about not being a very popular kid um, oh. and basically saying a lot of things that sort of uh, middle aged nerds say which is that they point out that uh, it didn't always used to be cool to read comics, and that came up in a number of panels. Because, um, uh, yeah, one person on the exhibitors panel was talking about having to... I remember on the 90s panel was talking about having to... back In order to get a Marvel t-shirt, you had to fill out a form in the back of the yeah. comic book and fill it in, and he was like, now try to avoid Marvel t-shirts, which is funny. But Chris Ware told us about not having a lot of friends, but he had one friend who was like into some of the same stuff he was into, and then his that family moved. And so he showed us a bunch of, like early like him as like a 10 year old early comic strips he wrote which were just his memories of playing with his friend oh and it's so it was so sad and also if you know chris Ware's work like yeah his stuff is often very very melancholy uh and so to to think that that was that was him even as like a nine or ten year old anyway I, i just forgot to tell that story before uh, so the last panel that I'll talk about for the whole convention because I didn't go to any panels on Sunday um, uh, ended up I thought it was going to be dry 
and ended up being so great. And it was the artist spotlight on Eddie Campbell, who is a comic book artist and is probably most famous for being the artist who did From Hell Mm -hmm. with Alan Moore, Mm -hmm. uh, which Alan Moore wrote. And I don't know if you're aware of this, IDW, From Hell was like independently published. Um, IDW uh, bought the rights and they've been putting out in in chapters as it was originally released a color version. Mm -hmm. So... Eddie Campbell's entire hour-long panel was just him walking us through side-by-side comparisons of his original, you know, 30 years ago, black and white panels and pages and the color ones. Is he okay with the colorization of it? He's He's doing it. But did he initiate it? uh, Yes, actually. Okay. Um, Because IDW said... uh, We want to go back... IDW came up with this idea of... Because it's been for 30, 25, 30 years now, it's just been a 600-page graphic novel. That's how you can yeah. buy it. But it was originally published in chapters. Um, and so IDW was like, we want to release it again that way. And Eddie Campbell was like, well, that's a stupid idea. <laughs> and he was like, there's no reason to do that unless you do something new or big. Yeah. And he also said uh, that it would, because it was self-published by him, he said he would have wanted to do it in color at the time, but okay. at that time, black and white was cheaper. Now, oddly, it's the opposite, that it's more expensive to publish in black and white, apparently. Hmm. Uh, I think because there's less demand for it. Um, yeah. Um, black and white film was kind of the same. You know, yeah. Um, anyway. Um, so, yeah, not only is he okay with it, he's relishing the idea because he didn't just go in and color things. He He tweaked so much stuff. Like, he talked about one thing. He was like, yeah, I was still young, and I was... He was like, I, I was a contemporary artist, so I wasn't used to drawing people with hats. And so I knew how big a head was, but I kept drawing the head and the hat, the size of the head, so the end result is that everyone in From Hell who wears a hat, their head's too small. So I went through and I made all the heads bigger. <laughs> so he did something like that. And then, but then he... So that's kind of a funny one, but then he did more specific things where he was like... I felt that this, like the second murder victim, I think it was the second murder victim. He was like, I felt that she was given a short shrift. So I went into a couple of the panels that she's in and moved her closer as a kind of a mm. close up so you could see more of her face. And, oh, see. Wow. Uh, and he was talking about, and there's some panels that like, there's one uh, that's just like in the original, it's just like the light from the carriage going off down an alley. And he was like, yeah, I'd been drawing all day. It was three o'clock in the morning in my twenties <laughs> and I just wanted to be done. So he went in and drew a whole new panel uh, for that. Um, but speaking of the carriage, that was one of the most fascinating things is he, he said, um, that he has since learned more about Victorian uh, London and realized that the carriage that he was having William Gull travel around in when he's like committing these murders was very ostentatious and like it would have been harder to get away because everyone would have been like who's the guy in the yeah, like, yeah. crazy so he went back and made it a more modest <coughs> carriage and all of those mm. things there's another shot um, when they pull up outside of Bedlam the, the mental asylum um, in the original one the, 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 the panel is looking out from inside the Bedlam courtyard through the locked gates and you see the carriage and he said the only reason he did that is because he was living in Australia at the time and he couldn't find in the library a visual reference for Bedlam mm-hmm. well he since found a really good one so now he turned essentially in camera turns turned the camera around and showed Bedlam because that was the only reason he right. didn't he oh, wow. the, and so it's all kinds of stuff he yeah, went like, yeah. and lightened stuff and darkened stuff moved stuff closer um, yeah all kinds of really fascinating Stuff and so uh, it was. Yeah, it was a really fascinating panel. Um, that in a way, even though it wasn't one of the comics arts panels mm-hmm. you're talking about, 
it was very instructive in talking about how because none of the dialogue is changed like uh, all the writing is still Alan Moore's writing and yet he's talking about how you can tell a story how he can change the story yeah. just by like I said moving so yeah, yeah, there was another one that uh, the, the prostitute's quarters he realized like that he was drawing the rooms too big like this was these are very poor people in 1888 they lived in tiny rooms yeah. so he just went in and drew the walls a little <laughs> little closer in all in all of those wow. in all of those scenes uh, it was really really fascinating he told a, a couple of uh, he, well, he said the the three questions he's asked most often one where do you get your ideas? Uh-huh. Two, what did you think of the From Hell movie? <laughs> and three, is Alan Moore, or how mad is Alan Moore? <laughs> um, yeah. And the only one of those I was going to ask that. The only one he answered was number two, which is that he thinks the movie's terrible. Um, I mean, it is. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, it really, uh, I was talking to the family, I, mean, I I haven't, th- I haven't thought about From Hell the movie in a long time. <laughs> I wish I could just forget it exists. Um, but it does feel like someone just wanted to make a Jack the Ripper movie and was like, well, why don't we go yeah, on to this existing right. property because it it changes so much of what the core I remember liking thing. the I haven't seen it in forever I remember liking the visual quality of the film it's a really nice um, production design but yeah. also like uh, Eddie Campbell had a problem with some of that too because he said he was drawing realist Victorian London whereas the film's production design and cinematography is it's just even before horrible things happen it's it's a visual palette that is telling you horrible things are going to happen. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's um, kind of expressionistic. Uh, and, yeah. yeah, which it, it's a perfectly nice way to make a, make the, make a Jack the Ripper movie, but it's... Yeah. Uh, he also made clear a couple more Alan Moore things. He made clear that... I don't know, have either of you actually read From Hell? Yes, I read no. your copy. Okay. So and he, I noted that like Jack the Ripper looked like he was wearing a giant foam cowboy hat, so now I know that, yeah. like, oh, he had a hard time with hats. I got uh, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, no, uh... Eddie Campbell and Alan Moore made, or Eddie Campbell made clear that neither he nor Alan Moore actually believe the conspiracy theory that the book lays mm-hmm. out or any of the conspiracy theories about Jack the Ripper. They think it probably was just an escaped bedlam patient who grabbed a knife on his way out is what Eddie Campbell said. Uh, the whole conspiracy theory was just um, a, a way of Alan Moore to write about something he wanted to write about, mm-hmm. about sort of the turn of the turn of the century. Um, and then the other thing he said, uh, Alan Moore has not really given him any notes. He's signed off on on what he's doing here. The only note he gave, because Eddie Campbell said he hadn't even thought about what IDW was putting on the back of the jacket. He insisted on the cover, because IDW wanted something like bloody or shocking on mm-hmm. the cover. And so he insisted, no, the cover should just be the four victims walking down the street together, mm-hmm. um, which is what it is. It looks very nice for when they put out the, the fully bound edition. Um, but the back IDW had put this sort of description and the, and one of the things they'd said was, and this time the blood is red and that Alan Moore was incensed by that. He's like, <laughs> that is not the sort of schlocky uh, yeah, thing that yeah. I was making. So that was Alan Moore's like only note on the entire thing was a bit of like essentially marketing copy on the back yeah. that he wanted uh, stricken. And it was, uh, so yeah, that ended up being, I, I, this is what I say when I got, when I say I got lucky, this, this comic con, yeah. like that was, that was kind of a backup panel for me. I mm-hmm. can't remember what else I was thinking about getting into at that time. Um, and it ended up being, what, what, it, it's, that, that is probably the panel that I spent the most time talking to people about since comic con. Yeah. <clears throat> I went to two other panels sort of over my time at comic con. Uh, the first was the DC universe panel. Uh, because we know I'm a Doom Patrol stan, and I just wanted to hear them tell me that they're getting a second season, and they are. (laughs) 
most interestingly, it's airing on DC Universe and HBO Max. Oh. Um, which leads me to believe that DC Universe is not long for the world. Yeah. Um, not that it'll shudder this year, but that it will shudder eventually. Um, the curse of the Swamp Thing. <laughs> or just the curse of a... Like, it, when, when Warner was like, hey, we're doing a streaming service, I was like, okay, so you also don't need HBO Go or HBO Now and DC Universe and TCMs, whatever, they're streaming. That's why... What was it, Filmstruck? Like, that's why that was going to... Like, they just... These companies want to consolidate all of their power into one thing. Yeah. Um, and so as happy as I am of Doom Patrol getting a second season... Um, and hopefully a higher budget because they're getting HBO dollars uh, that it's going away they screened the pilot episode for the Harley Quinn cartoon super adult super vulgar um, I was not expecting that hmm. uh, it's pretty funny it's like a very there's like a very dry humor yeah it was just interesting because like 10 rows in front of me there was like a 10 year old <laughs> and I was like, the the show starts off with like um, a bunch of white, rich white men on a boat. And one of them is like, let's have a toast. He's like, my fellow whites, you know, let's have a toast <laughs> to celebrate the thing that we do best, fucking over poor people. And like, that's how the show starts. So you already know. <laughs> and then it sort of spirals down from there and in really weird and interesting ways. So I... You might not know this for a while, that's how David and I started the show. <laughs> that's how we would open it. Because we also knew that our audience was pretty much white. Yeah. So. Yeah. And we got more popular. It's like, I guess we can't say this anymore. Yeah, no, none of that. <laughs> um, it worked for the show. Like, there are other things that happened in that, in that scene. But I was just like, okay, so this is how we're, we're starting off this show. Um, and then on Sunday, which is sort of my big cosplay day, because I did Jafar. Um, live action Jafar. Yeah. I saw it on Instagram. It looks great. I'm glad it did because it was very heavy and very hot. <laughs> uh, and some lady stepped on my cape 100 yards from the freaking convention center. I was like, I know you see this gigantic thing. Luckily, um, this was not a very hot. This, the weather was actually beautiful I in was, San Diego this year. Thank goodness. Yeah. Because I don't think I would have made it. Like, I got my final thing that I saw was Teen Titans Go versus Teen Titans. And, like, I got in that room to watch this movie. And, like, I took off the cape and the harness and the belt. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, everything that I could possibly do. I hiked up, like, the, I was, like, and, like, drank about ten cups of water. <laughs> um, and so I'm glad that the weather was great. Uh, Teen Titans Go vs. Teen Titans is really funny. Okay. Um, I'm liking this trend that, like, Spider-Verse and Avengers Endgame has of, like, uniting the various multiverses and not acting like you know bringing in a whole bunch of characters and in people and I mean the Arrowverse has done this with like their crossovers it's like you know there's really like seeing the Teen Titans go Teen Titans versus like the Teen Titans Teen Titans is really fascinating because they're like one is like the more cooler not adult but like a little more grown up Version and like the difference in animation styles that are interacting with each other in the same frame, um, was really really fascinating. So I enjoyed that. That was a fun way to sort of wrap up the con. Um, two things. So the last thing I did, uh, 
Comic-Con tradition, uh, our friend Kate Kolzik from the Televerse, um, she and I and my wife and Kate's sister and our friend uh, Gary uh, had margaritas, margarita brunch together uh, and then and then left. Um, but I really miss Comic-Con now. I really want to go next year. All right. Um, this is not Comic-Con related at all, Terrence, but I thought of you when I read this. <laughs> Speaking of stream HBO and streaming, yes. have you heard about what's happening at HBO Max, which is all new cast? I don't even know what HBO Max is. It's another streaming service. It's, it, it's the Warner, uh, Warner Brothers AT&T streaming service. Yeah. Okay. Um, they're using HBO because that's the brand with the biggest I see. Okay. Cachet. Well, they're bringing back Gossip Girl. Not uh, any of the cast, as far as I know. I did see that. But the prim- it's going to be like, I think it's going to be the same, like, you two know, public or private schools, and there's a new Gossip Girl. I unequivocally love the original Gossip Girl. Yeah, but do you... I don't without know... Without Blake Lively and Leighton Meester, do you want to watch that? I don't think I do. I just don't think that story mechanic is really going to hold up now like that the sort of specter of like oh all of these people like anonymously sending things in and like who is it like in 2007 worked really well because we that was so like new and fresh to us now it's like okay so like I can log on to Twitter and find out all of that information like what I don't think there's anything sort of special about like a surveillance state over teenagers <laughs> in the way that it was, you know, like pretty little liars lasted for a really long time. And I was like, how do you keep the conceit of like, who is a going for so long? Yeah. I just don't well, know if that story is really going to hold up. Here's how I'm, because I'm not going to watch it, but here's how uh, I'll yeah. love the new gossip girl. If the final episode, they reveal that gossip girl is the same person that it was, <laughs> <laughs> which is the dumbest. I, I don't know why I'm like protecting the spoiler, but it was uh, the dumbest reveal. It was so dumb, but it was so brilliant. <laughs> All right. It um, was only, it was only dumb. Like once you started to think about like, it doesn't make any sense. Some of the stuff that was relating to that character's family member, uh-huh, that was put right. on Gossip Girl. I yes. was like, "How did you just sit by, yeah. and like let all of that get said about?" Or shots of that person mm-hmm. earlier in earlier seasons, all alone reading Gossip Girl posts and reacting to them. <laughs> like, yes, <laughs> was he just that method? I or she? What? Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, well, this has been a blast. Thank you, Terrence, for yeah. joining us. Uh, listeners, you can find us at battleshipretention dot com. You can email us. At David at BattleshipRetention.com or Tyler at BattleshipRetention.com. You can follow me, David, on Twitter at DaveyPretension. Um, what did I review this week? Mike Wallace documentary, the movie The Mountain. I reviewed or will have reviewed Honeyland by the time you've, he- you've heard this. Uh, best documentary of the year so far, Honeyland. Uh, Tyler, you're on on, on Twitter at Tyler Pretension. That's correct. Anything else you want to plug? Uh not really. I was, uh, you can find this at Battleship Pretension. Um, I was a guest on a podcast called, uh, I believe it's called Two Nerds and a Joke, uh, and which was actually a lot of fun. It's a smaller podcast, but uh, I like those guys a lot, and I really enjoyed being on their show. Um, and then a uh, special thank you to Jamie Costa, who was our guest uh, last week. And then um, if you are interested in seeing his Han Solo fan film co-starring friend of the show, Doug Jones, you can find that at Battleship Pretension as well. So, uh, you can check that out. 
Terrence, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me at lenoirautour.net. That's L-E-N-O-I-R-A-U-T-E-U-R dot net. Um, I'm also on Twitter at lenoirautour. And I recently reviewed Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and ranked Quentin Tarantino's movies. Um, so you can see my unpopular opinions on both. <laughs> do, you, do you give a justification as to, the, as to that? To the rankings? Yeah. No. Okay. Because I was going to say, I want you to tell me right now your rankings, but then people yeah. will have no reason to go to that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we don't have time. But the, the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood review, probably the quickest review I've ever written in my life. Wow. Um, well, you, you didn't pull uh, light, Lights, Camera, Jackson, did you? No. I mean, <laughs> not in that it's like, it's like a 800, 900 word review. Oh. I, it just... Just poured out of you. What I didn't like about the movie really poured out of me. So there you go. I've had that from time to time. There yeah. was that movie Demolition with Jake Gyllenhaal <laughs> that I was so furious about while I was watching it that I just I couldn't. It's like I don't usually start writing a review in my head while the movie's yeah. going on, but I couldn't help it because it was like it was a coping mechanism while I was watching it. Well, thank you all for listening. We'll get you next time. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.